Episode 31 of Some Like It's Got, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me today, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, today we're going to be talking about at least one movie that I know is near and dear to your heart. But before we get to the good stuff, how have you been doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I know you love hearing about my uh, mock trial updates, and we're, we're really, uh, this we're getting down to it, because uh, this week, actually, next weekend, I'll be headed to Chapel Hill for regionals, which, you know, as I've said before, that's what we've been working towards, making it out of regionals for the first time in eight years. Um, And I think we're in a good place to do so. But, you know, it's kind of like March Madness. It's all about the matchup. Anything can go, anything can get weird um, when when you go to regionals, just because of the, the wide variety of teams that you'll see there. So it really will, I think, depend on who we end up hitting. But uh, hopefully on, on the next episode, I, I look forward to sharing with you the good news that, well, not just one, but both of our teams have made it through. Yeah, I mean, that, that obviously would be really awesome. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know whether our listeners care all that much about mock trial, but I enjoy it. And that's that's what matters most, right, Scott? Yeah. And hey, if they do, there's a mock trial podcast they can listen to as well called The Mock Review. The mock I, review. I, don't, I don't personally vouch for the quality of it, but hey, if you're into it, again, there's a podcast out there for everyone. Well, Scott, we try to vouch for the quality of this podcast, and we have a lot of content to get through for our listeners today, including a major review of Netflix's Velvet Buzzsaw, before we touch on a host of other movies as as well, to be fair. But first, we'll be tackling the sequel to 2014's The Lego Movie, which itself is one of Scott's favorite animated movies of all time, if not his favorite animated movie of all time. Maybe I'll let him speak on that in a second, but uh, we'll be reviewing The Lego Movie 2, the second part here first. Uh, Although replaced in the director's chair by the veteran animated movie director Mike Mitchell, the now iconic duo of Phil Lord and Christopher Miller do return to pen this sequel, largely set five years after the events of the first film and continuing the story from the end of the first film of the invaders from the planet Duplo, which has laid waste now to Bricksburg and forced the likes of Emmett, voiced by Chris Pratt. Uh, Lucy slash Wild Style, voiced by Elizabeth Banks, and the other master builders to reconstruct a post-apocalyptic version of their civilization and rename it Apocalypseburg. When a new threat, General Sweet Mayhem from the Sistar system arrives and kidnaps Lucy, Batman, Princess Unikitty, Metalbeard, and Benny, Emmett is faced with the harsh reality that everything may not be so awesome anymore, and his friends may need him to may need him to save them and the universe. Scott, does this Lego-friendly sequel recapture the magic of the first film for you, or should this movie be relegated to the bin of storage? Some people wait years for a new Star Wars movie. Some people wait years for a new Marvel or or DC movie. Um, And then there's me, and I wait five years for a new Lego movie because, as you noted, the first movie is... Yeah, it's 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 my favorite animated movie of all time. It's up there on my list of favorite movies of all time. I've watched it countless times since it came out. I went to see it twice in theater. I think it is a, an ingenious, hilarious, uh, heartwarming movie that absolutely everyone should see. And I think that uh, while the second movie 
can't match that impossibly high bar set by uh, the first movie. I am, was not in the least bit disappointed being the, you know, and this is coming from obviously the biggest Lego super fan of all, a biggest super fan of the first movie. Um, and But I was not disappointed at all of what the second movie has to offer. I think it is, yes, it's more of the same, but if you have to uh, copy a movie or follow from a movie, mimic a movie, you can do a lot worse than the Lego movie, uh, I have to say. And, and so, I mean, you know, I, I don't think people were asking for anything different from the sequel. I know that I certainly wasn't. And we don't get anything different, but again, I think that's perfectly fine. It's, we have the same fast-paced sense of humor uh, with jokes that will appeal to both kids and adults. You had the same like beautifully detailed Lego environments that were so striking in the first film and are equally striking here. Like you get a cross between like Star Wars. Um, really, the whole movie I think is kind of the the cross between Star Wars and Mad Max Fury Road that we we never really knew that we needed, but and certainly not in Lego form. But hey, it it delivers, I think. Uh, but so you know, we get we get a wide variety of of Lego environments here, but they all look fantastic. The voice cast outstanding. Uh, no one phones it in at all. Everyone really gives it their all. And we have some new songs. Of course, you know, everything is awesome. One of the most memorable parts of the first Lego movie, that that great song by uh, Lonely Island and Tegan and Sarah. We have uh, at least a couple songs that I think come close to, if not bettering, uh, the everything is awesome from the first movie. And I, I just love everything that this movie um has to say that it has it has another great message. You know, the first movie was a lot about fathers and sons and sort of about uh, this idea of perfectionism versus creativity and how we should allow creativity in, you know, a world that sometimes is rigidly structured, um, how, how we should always make room for creativity. And I think this movie is about, you know, continuing that family dynamic is about, you know, siblings and how, how siblings should open up to each other, play with each other. And I think that the way the movie gets that message across in its, you know, traditional Lego narrative, as well as, you know, just like in the first movie, we sort of go outside the Lego world and we're we're following the family of, of Finn, who is the, the young boy from the first movie. Um, and, you know, we meet his sister, Bianca, who's played by Brooklyn Prince from The Florida Project and his mom, played by Maya Rudolph. Um, and so we get more in that story as well, which I think is great. And, I mean, yeah, I, I said it on Letterboxd, but I think these movies are honestly the Toy Story franchise for Generation Z. I mean, they, they accomplish everything that the Toy Story franchise uh, accomplishes. Uh, and I think that I may get shot for this, but I think it, it they're even more successful. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? It's been so long since I've seen especially like the original Toy Story and Toy Story 2. Obviously, Toy Story 3 is more recent and we you know, we're going to be revisiting all of those this this year with Toy Story 4 coming out this summer. But to me, I think that for a generation that's a little bit younger, so you know, didn't necessarily grow up with Toy Story, I think that you might resonate with them. That This might be more, uh, I don't even know what the right word is here. It, it might be more in, enjoyable for, for people who maybe grew up more uh, with, with Legos more so than action figures or, or, or something like that. And that's not to say action figures aren't still popular, but something like the Lego movie, something with, you know, the humor of the Lego movie from, you know, Lord and Miller. I think that's probably something that maybe resonates a little bit more than, you know, a, a Pixar movie. And may, maybe I'll get shot for that too. You know, for me, to just um, go, you know, go back to some of the things that you said and touch upon those, I'm not sure that this this I mean, I do agree that this movie doesn't recapture, you know, 
perfectly everything that was so great about the first movie. I think it still does a good job, but I think I'd be lying to say that I'm not coming out a little bit uh, more balanced on, on this movie in terms of what I thought of it than, than you are who, I mean, you, you've, you've laid out a, a pretty strong case that this is, you know, a really, really great movie. And, and I'm not sure. And for, for me that this was a really, really great movie. I don't think, uh, you mentioned the music. Like, I don't know if the music is as catchy or as clever, or, or I shouldn't say clever cause that's not the right word, but I don't think anything surpasses. Everything is awesome for me. I, I appreciated some of the things they did with the music. Uh, I really enjoyed the not evil song, which you get from, um, Tiffany Haddish's uh, queen, whatever Wanabi. Um, which I thought was a really great song. I thought it was really clever how they remixed everything is awesome later in the movie for everything's not awesome. But to me, I mean, I don't know the, the catchy song, which I think is literally the name of it. Uh, the movie, I think what was probably what people would go for or point to it has been like, okay, this is the song that is the, everything is awesome from the last movie. I mean, that, that song, honestly, Scott, I, I can't even remember any of the words to it besides, I, I guess, catchy song is probably in it somewhere stuck in your head is in it somewhere. But it just it didn't stick with me. Maybe I'm I'm in the minority for that experience with the music. And then when it comes to the the, the plot, and we're going to touch on all of these things in more depth, probably in a little bit. I thought that Apocalypseburg was a really at the beginning, I was really captivated by how it transformed out. I don't know what I expected. I was kind of hoping they wouldn't keep everything exactly the same in Bricksburg. And of course, you know, most of the movie's not even spent on that planet. It's spent on, uh, you know, the, the, the Duplo universe, or I don't even know what, how you call that, the, the series of planets in the Duplo universe. But uh, I really enjoyed Apocalypseburg for the little bit of time that we were there. I thought that was a really cool. I think your, your callback to Mad Max, uh, kind of a crossover between Mad Max and, and a couple other movies is, is spot on. I thought that was a really cool first, like 30, 45 minutes or however long we spent there. But for me, I think what I, the plot kind of lost me at certain points and we'll touch on it more specifically later. And I don't even know, like the mental gymnastics that it required and, and it, which sounds dumb, right? Like you have to suspend your disbelief for everything in this franchise, but it, it maybe felt one step too far for me at times. That being said, the voice cast is great. Totally agree that no one phones it in. It's a great voice cast. And it's, it's from a group of actors who you aren't necessarily, I mean, besides the, for, you know, the first Lego movie, you don't necessarily associate them with being like, you know, we need to get these, these voice actors into our film ASAP because they're going to make it great, but they make it great. Like Chris Pratt is awesome. Elizabeth Banks is awesome. Will Arnett. I mean, probably the standout voice role from the first movie uh, comes back and delivers again. And he, of course he had his own spinoff Lego movie, with Lego Batman just a couple of years ago. And it's clear that he is the, I mean, to, and from my perspective, he's the voice voice acting star of this franchise, even though Emmett is, of course, the the real star of the movie and what you're always going to remember, I think, from these movies. And finally, just to, before we dive in a little bit deeper on some specifics, I think that your 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 note about the kind of the real world uh, or what's happening between Bianca and Finn and, and then his par- and then their parents to me that I thought that was the part of the movie of the first movie that I liked the least. And I don't think that has changed much here. I think that you get more of that. And so I think the story and, and how it ties into everything is more coherent in the second movie. So in that sense, I think I liked the real world aspect it more than the first movie, but I still kind of just want to be in Bricksburg. I want to be in Apocalypseburg. I want to be, you know, on, you know, at the temple or in all the different Lego settings and to be dragged out of it in, you know, in, in the middle of the movie at times, it, it always takes me out of it a little bit. I do, like I said already, I do think that they integrate that a little bit better into this movie than the last one, but I still don't know if I love all the time that we spend outside of the Lego, the Lego worlds itself. 
Yeah, I think that's an understandable reaction. For me, I see that more as, at, at some level, even though there are jokes that kids will never understand in these movies, these are kids' movies, and I think really to get the message that they want across, you have to step outside of this Lego world because, sure, like, we can sit here and say, okay, like, we get it. Like, you're supposed to play with your siblings. We don't even really need this whole alternate narrative to to figure that out. But if we're talking about kids, you know, a- ages 10 to however old, you probably need something a little more cut and dry to say, look, this is what we're talking about here. This is how what's going on is connected to how you guys play with Legos, you know, in your own time. So I appreciate it for that, even if maybe, you know, it, it, that we lose some of the subtlety a little bit. And yeah, it does take us out of the Lego world. But I think I, I, I see it as a necessary evil to to get the message across. Uh, for me, like, I, I think, well, I mean, a couple of things where I, I can critique the movie, like it was too long by about 10 minutes or so. I mean, not an original critique for me, but I think it still applies here as much as I love this movie. I also think that there are times where like the, the sense of humor just feels a little tired. Like we see like the same joke format a, a few times in the movie. And like some of the jokes, like from the first movie, like just getting us introduced to the personalities of like Emmett and like, you know, all, all of the other characters, obviously, I, I think they don't play as well here because I'm like, there was a couple times when I was like, okay, I get it. Like Emmett, Emmett's a happy-go-lucky, carefree guy. You know, that's his personality. We get it. Like, we can move on from that. But again, I think those are minor critiques for me. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's, I think there are valid critiques. And I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because it, you mentioned it kind of at the outset briefly before following up on it here. But it is, in, in a lot of instances, it is more of the same. Of course, the maybe the themes evolve and, and the overall message of this movie is different than the first one, right? I, I think that you could have maybe since touches of the theme that they explored, you know, in depth in this movie and the, at, you know, towards the end of the first movie. But that being said, you're right. There are probably a couple moments throughout the film where you're like, all right, yep. I know this, um, I, you know, maybe I smiled a little bit, maybe I chuckled a little bit, but, um, I think of a, when we're talking about evolution of humor, I look, I think about something like Deadpool two evolving from Deadpool one, like, yeah, you still get some of the same humor across the two movies, but ultimately Deadpool two, I think is much more clever. And I'm not sure that this movie is, is more clever. And in fact, in some instances, I'd say this movie is maybe a little bit less clever than the first one. And, and maybe, Maybe I don't think this is true, and I don't think this is a major critique against the movie. I do want to emphasize this, but you know, m- maybe Lord and Miller just ran out of ideas to how to, to how to evolve these particular characters, and so you know, I don't know if there's going to be another sequel or not uh, to them. I, I hope they do another movie in this universe. I hope that they maybe do a spinoff or, or something like that. But I, I wonder if they either ran out of time to refine their script, or or if they just ran out of ideas for some of the you know, comedic elements. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted them to change the sense of humor so much because, like, too much because it is one of the things I love about really all of Lord and Miller's movies um, have, have the same sort of sense of humor. But I agree. I mean, could could have used a little bit of touching up, perhaps. Uh, but I still laughed all the way through the movie. All right, might as well dive in to some of the voice cast. We we've mentioned a few of the names already, of course, but no no, no better place to start than Chris Pratt. Yeah, he's great. I mean, this role is honestly perfect for him. It's it's almost there's definitely a lot of Andy Dwyer in this uh, role. Of course, his his Parks and Rec character. I think you know, like I said, he's he's just this happy go lucky, carefree dude who you know is sort of unassuming, but uh, finds himself in p- positions to to save the world. Although I think uh, it, this movie does an interesting job of calling into question. Uh, whether or not Emmett is the real hero, which I think is an interesting 
place for this to go and probably a good place. Uh, but then we also get, I think Chris Pratt does a nice job on the other side of other side of the coin because he plays another character here, Rex Danger Vest, which uh, is the alter ego, so to speak, of uh, of Emmett. And he uh, th- they get a lot of mileage out of the fact that Rex Danger Vest kind of assembles Chris Pratt in real life and, and the roles that he plays, you know, all the way down to the fact that Rex happens to be a raptor trainer as well, uh, just like uh, Owen, which is, of course, Chris Pratt's character from the Jurassic World movies. And so I think he does a good job of uh, bringing a, a rougher edge with, with uh, Rex Danger Vest character, but then balancing it out, of course, with the same happy-go-lucky Emmett that we know and love. Yeah, no, I, I, I did love the kind of dichotomous performance almost on opposite ends of the spectrum. You mentioned that it calls back to his Owen Grady role for the Jurassic Jurassic World uh, movies. And, and of course it, it is, you know, at some level an homage to star Lord from the MCU. And, and then I think the, the cowboy and archeologist elements are his role from the magnificent seven remake. And then, I mean, he's constantly being rumored that he's going to take over Indiana Jones, which I mean, we'll see if that's true when the next Indiana Jones movie does come out because it is confirmed. But no, I, I think it's a great role. And if you talk about people who were, you know, crushed it in the first movie and crushed it again in the second movie, not just in reprising the role, but also, you know, giving giving more um, giving more uh, screen time, giving more voice time getting more opportunity to show that uh, I mean, although Emmett may be a one one or I mean, you can argue in this movie, he becomes more than a one dimensional uh, Lego character. But uh, Chris Pratt shows that his voice acting when I mean, we kind of already knew his acting was uh, the quality of his acting, but his voice acting is has just as much range as his uh, uh, live action roles. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, so kind of the other lead performance in this movie, it has to be Elizabeth Banks, who plays Wild Style. Uh, what did you think of her in this movie? Is it, was it more of the same from the first movie or did you see some growth here as well? I mean, in terms of the performance, I think it's probably more of the same, which is not a bad thing. Like, I think she does a great job. But, I, I, you know, as I was alluding to just a minute ago, I think that the characters more interesting here because they they take a little feminist spin on it. Like early in the movie, you know, we have a scene where Captain Mayhem tells Wildstyle like, oh, so, you know, you're telling me that, you know, you did all of the work, you know, referring back to the first movie, but the hapless male, you know, referring to Emmett is the one who got the credit, which I thought was, you know, interesting. And, and it was something that I was thinking about throughout uh, this movie as well, because Wildstyle is the one who's at the forefront for a lot of the movie. I mean, Emmett gets sidetracked, you know, with, with Rex Danger Vest on, on their own sort of adventure. Wildstyle is the one who has to save, uh, you know, the the band of uh, heroes that we love, whether it's, you know, Batman, Benny, Unikitty, all of them in, in a lot of these situations. And so I like what they did with the character of Wildstyle here. And I mean, yeah, Elizabeth Banks does a great job. I think in general, like what I love about the voice cast is that they all give 100%. Like it's clear that they are very invested in the movie. They're not just phoning it in, you know, collecting their paycheck by doing some some voice work like they they want to make this the best movie that they can. Yeah. And that's always great to see because this is totally I mean, not now. Right. But the first Lego movie, it could have been one of those things where people were very skeptical. And, or, you know, you get certain actors who might have been like, all right, I'm in this movie because my voice is really recognizable. I'm going to do exactly what you described. I'm like, maybe not completely phone it in, but I'm not going to really give it my all. I'll take my paycheck and move on. But I think what was so not necessarily unique, but, but I think one of the things that really stood out to me in the first movie was just how committed they were to getting people who would care about these roles, right? You're, they're not, I kind of mentioned this at the 
earlier, but they're not traditional voice actors. I don't. I mean, Chris Pratt, not a voice actor. Elizabeth Banks, I mean, to my knowledge, I don't know if she's done other animated stuff, but I don't associate her with being an, a voice actress. You, you know, and I think that's up and down the the casting list here. And so I really, I really thought that was awesome. And, and you can see that carry over to the second movie here as well. And uh, for Elizabeth Banks more specifically, I, I guess I thought her role was really good. You learn, it, it's more of a plot element than a, a performance element, but you learn a lot about, or a lot more about Wildstyle and or slash Lucy's character here. And I thought there was a good, there was good direction there. And I thought that Elizabeth Banks did a good job kind of matching that, that narrative arc for her character in this movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed sort of the twist or, or that you, that you uh, learn about her character like almost right at the very end of the movie, which I thought was uh, was nice. I appreciated it. Yeah, no, it, it is the very end of the movie. I think that's the last shot before the yeah. credits. No, that's mm-hmm. good. Uh, and, you know, there are so many other people in this voice cast. I've kind of broken them out into two more buckets. You think of the returning voices, so the people who are familiar from from Bricksburg and the surrounding areas in the first movie, that, which I think the, the lead for which would, of course, be Will Arnett's Batman. But, I mean, there are a list of other people as well. There's Charlie Day, who plays Benny, uh, the spaceship-obsessed spaceman. Allison Brie, who plays the very memorable Princess Unikitty. Nick Offerman as Metal Beard. And um, is that it? I mean, the, the list goes goes on. There's Will Ferrell, who has, you know, a brief return as president business. And yeah, there's also the Justice League characters who return and the list goes on. Batman's off in his own spinoff. Though. That was good. I, I mean, I think they're all they're all great. I mean, they and they all capture what we loved about the first character, you know, or f- first movie. Benny running around yelling spaceship all the time. Batman being the really, you know, brooding emo guy that, that you know, they really effectively make fun of. All of the, you know, sort of dark Batman movies that we've seen over the past 20 years or so. And, you know, I, I think they're all great. I will say, like, we'll talk about the new characters in a second, but I, I did miss some of the old characters. Like, particularly, I missed Liam Neeson's bad cop, good cop, who you actually see him, like, for two seconds in the movie, but he doesn't have any voice work or anything. But I loved uh, Liam Neeson's voice performance in the first movie. I thought, uh, you know, obviously we're not used to seeing comic roles from him, but I thought he did a great job. And of course, Morgan Freeman, you know, we we also don't have him returning as Vitruvius, which I kind of missed his character as well. But I guess he did die sort of in the first movie. So it probably wouldn't have been right. But I mean, anything is possible in the Lego universe. But yeah, I mean, it, what is there is great. And they got a lot of the, you know, the principal players back. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the the new performances, although we will talk about the second, and I do think they are good don't don't really compare in my in my opinion or at least don't live up to the performances from both Liam Neeson and Morgan Freeman uh, and but but like you said it's strong I think Will Arnett's still probably the probably the 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 funniest and most memorable voice in the cast because of his the way he voices Batman and and the way that they you know riff so hard on the stereotypes of, of Batman over the years but with that having been said, why not go ahead and talk about the, the new people from the Sistar system? Uh, Tiffany Haddish as Queen Whatever Wanabi, who's a shape-shifting alien queen. And then, of course, Stephanie Beatrice, who's General Sweet Mayhem, uh, the intergalactic, I guess, a military leader of the Sistar system who, do, who kidnaps uh, some of the master builders at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I think they're both good. I, I, like, I really like what Tiffany Haddish brings to the musical elements of the movie because she actually has a really good singing voice which we get to hear mm-hmm. um you know you that song but we, we hear it uh you know at, at other places in the movie 
And I think Stephanie Beatrice, is she does a fine job with the voice performance. I think her character wasn't as interesting to me until a little bit later on when I realized what they were trying to do with the character. And I think I appreciated it more then. But yeah, again, these are solid additions, but maybe don't stack up to some of some of my high highlights of the first movie. Yeah, and, and you know, we've, we've said that several times now, and I, I do think it's important to note that, I mean, our listeners it's, it, it know this, but to remind them, they're like, the, the the high bar of the first film is, is literally the highest bar it could, it could be, I think. So it, yeah. it's tough. It's really tough to live up to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, when we get to my score at the end, you'll, you'll, you'll see that uh, these critiques were very minor. <laughs> Uh, but to to circle back around on Tiffany Haddish really quickly, I think that she's of of the two new people. Of course, I, I like Stephanie Beatrice. By the end, I think you, your description of, of liking this character more at the end when you finally understand what they're doing is true. But the fact that it takes that long to get there, I, I don't. I, I mean, that's not. It doesn't have to be that way, in my opinion. It, like it didn't have an, a, a particularly strong effect on me after I realized it. And so, if the point of it, and so for because it took me so long to figure out why I should enjoy this performance. I don't know that that makes up for the fact that I didn't enjoy it for a large part of the movie, but for Tiffany Haddish to your point, and you mentioned that I had mentioned the song already, but just to reiterate, I thought that her performance in the song, not evil. And then also, you know, throughout the whole film itself, really great. One of my, one of my favorite performances from the movie. Yeah. Agreed. Let's go ahead and move on to the plot. We've, we've mentioned it briefly already. You kind of have these two threads of the plot. You have the things that are going on in the Lego world. And then, of course, the things going on in the quote unquote real world in the house with the family. Scott, where do you want to start? Uh, why don't we start with the Lego uh, narrative? I like, again, the, the, wor- the way that they sh- combine the two worlds of sort of this space opera world as well as the apocalypse berg, which we get to see for about the first 30 minutes, as you said. You know, I don't know if the movie uh, effectively presents a lot of different environments in the way that the first movie did. Or, I mean, maybe that was just, again, getting acclimated to the visual style was so great in the first movie. Um, like, you know, learning how, how this visual style works, see, seeing it for the first time, I think, uh, is where a lot of the appeal c- came from. But I like that even though we get different environments in this movie, we have a lot of callbacks to the first movie. I mean, we have... Uh, all of the master builders making appearances. We have, uh, you know, all, all of the uh, the cats that he says hello to. Um, we have sort of this whole same sequence that we get from the first movie where, you know, he, he's saying good morning to everyone in the morning. And, I, you know, so while, while I think you don't have to have seen the first movie to uh, appreciate this one, I do appreciate that they have a lot of callbacks to the first movie and a lot of jokes that there's there's payoffs in both movies for some jokes that, uh, you know, are from the first movie as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that maybe, maybe I'd even go a little bit stronger. I, I think that you do kind of need to have to seen the first one. Like, yeah, yeah, you can enjoy the second movie for what it is as a standalone. But I think that to really get the full experience, you definitely have to have seen the first movie. And that's not like that. That's strange, right? Like any sequel, you're to fully enjoy it. You know, there, of course, there's varying ranges of independence in movies and, and whether you can enjoy something without having seen the first one. And this, I guess, relatively speaking, this one's pretty far up there. But I do think you're going to miss out on a lot. Um, and you're not going to appreciate some of the character development as much in this movie if you don't if you haven't seen the first one. I'm thinking particularly for someone like Wild Style, right? Like I think yeah. that you're not going to appreciate the narrative you know, journey that she that her character goes on in this movie, even from the very beginning, right? Unless you saw the first one, uh, and I think that's also true for some other characters, including Batman uh, and, and Emmett, for that matter, too, as well. It's, it's pretty up and down the cast list for me. Yes, you can get a sense of it from just watching this movie, 
but you do benefit a lot, I think, from having seen that first one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, again, there are a lot of jokes that you won't like probably won't appreciate as much. The the, the triple decker couch makes a return. Um, you know, just stuff that was so funny. Yeah. I mean that it was it was so great in the first movie and so it, it was great to see it make a return here. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, we mentioned it, the you have the the real world element of it as well, much, much more for that matter than the first movie, which I kind of alluded to earlier. Scott, what what I mean, I know that you I, I should let me back up. I, I should say that I think it's it's so, it's so much more important to the plot and the themes of this movie than it was in the first one. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. This resonated with me because I don't you know, I, I think this, that the sibling theme that this movie has is more geared towards like brothers and sisters just because of the, you know, different types of characters that we get. And like, you know, the different types of, you know, Lego characters that each, each person plays with, but it did resonate with me, of course, having a sibling and getting into the sort of fights as a kid um, that, uh, you know, that the Bianca and Finn get into in this movie, of course, definitely was relatable to me. Although I'm actually not someone who I, I played with Lego some, but like not a ton as a kid. I wasn't like super into it, but still, I mean, it, I think it, you don't have to have played with Legos. Like what they're going for here doesn't just apply to Legos. It applies to like playing anything. And so I always appreciate movies that talk about the relationship between siblings that, it, it, that explore the relationship between siblings and argue that siblings, you know, you should, you should be good to each other because that's who you got in the world. And so I, I like that a lot because I do have a close relationship with my brother. So it, it was great to see a movie that uh, that reinforces that idea. I, so, yeah, I mean, we do get a little bit more of the the world, as you as you said. But I liked learning a little bit more because really the whole first movie is just uh, just Finn and his dad played by uh, Will Ferrell. And so we get you know, we we get a broader view of what's going on here. And of course, you know, it picks up from the first movie with, uh, you know, th- there's that joke at the end of the first movie about how, oh, now, you know, you, you're, if I'm letting you come down here and play, I have to let your sister come down here as well. And so they bring that back, which I, I appreciated uh, that that wasn't just sort of a throwaway line in the first movie. Yeah, no, that that's true. And I think that you get a lot more out of this, the real world element in this one, because there's more of it, because there's more development there. I, I you know, it, it, you can only ask so much of, of a movie, right? But I do think that, you know, I, I don't know if, it, if if all the events in the real world are something that I that I believe, uh, you know, how how quickly, you know, Finn and Bianca kind of make up and start playing in the yard. Granted, you know, I, I have to raise my hand and say here, I don't have siblings. I never I can't personally relate to this this narrative plot. And I don't know if if in my situation, I was trying to put myself in Finn's shoes, if I would be so quickly make make amends with with the person who I would view as the who ruined my ability to play with, you know, a bunch of toys that I really enjoyed. Scott, maybe you can speak better to that, but I thought that was maybe a little bit forced, but ultimately, of course, needed to serve the purpose of, of the theme of the movie. Yeah, and I have to say, this is an unrelated point, but I do like, I also like the way that they tie up the Rex Danger Vest plotline in the real world at the end. It almost sort of calls back to the father-son uh, message that we get in the first movie about uh, how, you know, Rex Danger Vest kind of tells Emmett at the end of the movie, like, I'm you, but, uh, you know, I want you to, you're, you're going to grow up and be a better version of me. You know, you're going to grow up and be, uh, you know, something better than what I am, which I think is kind of, 
you know, what a lot of parents will probably want for their kids or say to their kids. So I, I appreciate the way that they, they brought that back as well. I thought they did a good job bringing home the, re- the Rex Dangerous thing. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I think probably the last thing if, you know, up to up to now, I've done pretty a non spoilery take on this one. But I do think that to talk about one of the things that I didn't like about this movie, I think we do need to, you know, put up the spoiler. The spoiler, um, the spoiler warning here. So, uh, yeah, let's talk more about the end of the movie and Rex Dangerous and how that all gets tied up. I, I want to first say that I did really like, I to start off with, I should say, I really like this character. I thought that the kind of the satire of Chris Pratt's live action uh, roles was absolutely hilarious. I, you know, in my letterbox review said that this, if this is the future of the Jurassic Park franchise, then you know we're in a better place than I expected because it's so funny. I thought that what they do with that was one of one of the funniest parts of the movie to be honest. However, I don't I don't know how much I like this whole t- the whole time travel element and and how Rex is Emmett in an alternate universe where he was, you know, thrown under the dryer and no one ever came to save him. It felt very forced. It felt like a really strange twist in, in the in the plot and not not in terms of lack of believability. I mean, I mean because there is that element right and I think it is important to remember it's a Lego movie though. You like nothing is believable they're talking legos but the the idea that everything is being driven by or or the the quote-unquote villain of the movie is 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 driven by this person who has been neglected and abandoned in like a way that just seemed kind of outlandish to me it just it it didn't really it didn't feel believable which again i i want to say that i recognize is a strange thing to say in a lego in a lego movie but I just I guess I didn't I didn't follow it so smoothly as I maybe followed some of the other plot elements in this movie. And then, of, of course, in the first movie as well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do think it gets a little muddled, maybe what they're trying to say. Um, I, I think, you know, you could you could say, oh, here's, uh, you know, Rex Dangerous is kind of the version of the dad from the first movie who, uh, you know, at least until Rex change until the dad changes at the end of the movie, because, you know, the dad is kind of a villain in the first movie, you know, the way that he's so perfectionist about, you know, his Lego environments that he has in, in the basement and doesn't want, uh, you know, his son to change anything. I think you can also look at it as like, hey, you know, it's kind of a cautionary tale for Finn. Like, this is what can happen to you if you don't, you know, start playing with your sister. If you don't, you know, become a better person, you're going to end up just like your dad or, you know, you're going to end up just like Rex Dangerbest. Um, you're going to be the villain. And so I, I agree. I don't think it's as clear. It could be it could be clearer. Um, it's definitely not as cut and dry as the whole sibling thing. But I like what they were trying to say, even if it wasn't quite as successful in saying it. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I think that I'm definitely a little bit more negative on how they were saying it. And and maybe that's just a matter of, of perspective, because I think the message is, is still ultimately right. I take your point about it being kind of a at least relate like corollary to what they were saying in the first movie. I'm not sure that I follow it as much. I think that the, just the whole idea of getting neglected, popping out, get like stealing the lore. It was just like it. It, it all is very hand wavy, and and again, like I I get it. It's a Lego movie. It can be hand wavy. That's totally fine. But for me, I I got lost somewhere along the way, and that's not. And I don't think that's fine. Not because it was hand wavy, but because it stood out from the hand waviness of the rest of the movie. Uh, that's I mean, I don't want to dwell too long on the point, but that's that was probably one of the the biggest negatives for me was kind of just the way the plot all ties up in the in the second half. Um, although that being said, I, I do like the direction that it ultimately leads to them taking with the Sistar system. Right. And, and and the ultimate 
way that 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 ties itself up and, and, and wraps up in a, in a nice little bow about how in terms of perception, you know, you see these things as being the enemy, but when you actually open your eyes, listen, get to know them, mm-hmm. they're not your enemy. I think that's a really good story. But the fact that the rest of it ties up in, in this other in this other way, it just didn't work for me. Well, agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah, no, totally fine. Uh, and on that note, I think that it's fair to say, Scott, that, um, you know, in spite of my critiques and, and criticisms of the movie, still a great start for animated movies in 2019. Let's hope we can get some uh, of a similar quality for the rest of the year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, just because I'm so partial to these movies, I don't know if I, if there's one that's going to top it for me. But hey, I, I'm definitely down to see more animated movies try. Yeah, you know, you know, I mean, we have Toy Story 4 over the summer. I think that, you know, if there's going to be a movie that um, f- that rivals the the touching nature of, of uh, Lego Movie 2 and, and the story driven uh, nature of it, you know, whether or not you end up liking it more than the Lego Movie 2, Scott, that, that, that's that's still to, to be determined, but I think that it, it certainly has the ability to rival it. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with toy story Four, even if I'm a little skeptical of it, just because I thought the third one ended so perfectly and tied the trilogy up so perfectly. But I mean, I love all three of the toy story movies, so I'm here for it. I agree. All right, let's wrap this one up. Scott favorite scene from the Lego movie Two. Man, there's there's a lot of choices just because these movies have so many jokes in them, right? They have so many memorable, ga- you know, whether it's visual gags or lines. But I think, you know, one of the things, one of the parts which made me laugh the hardest, maybe the hardest, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just sort of the randomness of it. At the beginning, towards the beginning of the movie, there's a scene where Wildstyle and Emmett are trying to shoot a firework signal to Batman. And they shoot the wrong firework first and it says happy new year. And Batman's just like, I can't believe another year has passed. And then it goes back and they shoot the right firework. And it says, yeah, I forget what it says. I, th- I think maybe it's just like a bat signal or something or it says help or something. And as the, as the firework goes up, you see Batman and Alfred are dancing and singing old long Syne. And it's just like so weird and, and funny. I, that's one of the things I didn't really say this, but I think this movie is weirder than the first movie, but in a good way. I appreciate that it gets a little weirder. And that was one of the moments, I guess, where that stands out more. And it just made me laugh a lot. I, I really thought that you were going to say something about Cheryl Swoops, WNBA superstar. You mean WNBA legend uh, Cheryl Swoops? Yes. Uh, of course. I, I love the callback for to the uh, the 2002 NBA All-Stars, who, of course, were some of the master builders in the first movie, and, and Shaq. But uh, I, I went with the... the New Year gag instead. No, the New Year, the New Year gag is is a good one. I really kind of also t- pulling from the beginning of the movie. I really enjoyed the the tour through Emmett's uh, dream house with Wildstyle, and then they ultimately ended in the final room is a is a toast room, so you can have toaster waffles anytime you want. I just yeah, I couldn't stop laughing at that. I don't know why. I just thought that was so funny. It's it's visually great too. Just seeing all these crazy you know trampoline rooms and all this stuff, the the bizarre things that go on in the house. Yeah, especially for such a small house. I guess most of it's underground. But all right, Scott, let's put a score on it. I, I know it's going to be high. You've you've alluded to it already. What's it going to be? It's got to be a nine for me. I, I, I really enjoyed this movie, even if it doesn't hit the highs of the first movie again. I wasn't really expecting it to hit the highs of the first movie. I went in wanting something that would, you know, recapture everything I loved about the first movie. And I think the movie absolutely does that. I, again, I wasn't disappointed at all. And I think it, it earns a nine. Falling short, of course, of the 10, which I would absolutely give to the original Lego movie. 
All right, Scott. Of course, it's not, it's not going to be a surprise to you that I'm lower. I'm at a 7.2, but it's a good movie. I liked it better. I, I will say that I enjoyed the movie more than my score might indicate. I still think this is a good movie. Uh, I mean, a 7.2 is a good score. Let's be, let's like no mistake about it. But I really enjoyed this movie, and I think I might go see it again. Yeah, I, I hope you do, and I hope you uh, you come around on it and come around on the songs because I don't know what you're saying. I I definitely have you know the the catchy song as well as the in credit song, which. Please stay for the end credits because the end credits song is great. Uh, I, I definitely still have both of those stuck in my head. So, uh, yeah, ho- hope you uh, give it a second chance. Yeah, no, no, the end song is great, Scott. We talked yeah. about that. I mean, you texted me before I saw it. Then you're like, look, you got to save through the whole thing. And that is, I think, this is the cleverest part of the movie. I'm going to be really frank. Like, I thought that yeah. was so, so funny. Um, and Everything's Not Awesome, the remix. I mentioned this at the beginning. Really enjoyed what they did with that as well, mm-hmm. as well as Not Evil. But yeah, the, 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 tr- the truth is the catchy song didn't didn't hit for me, but, but maybe it will on the second time, Scott. I mean, w- you don't have to look too far back in the in the annals of our podcast to see where I I was a little bit lukewarm, relatively speaking, on Black Klansman. And I watched it a second time and I'm like, this movie's way better than I thought it was yeah. the first time I saw it. Yeah, I've definitely had a lot of movies that uh, have done the same 180 for me. Well, let's take a short break. Uh, That'll do it for our discussion of Lego Movie 2. And when we return, we'll be discussing our first Netflix movie of 2019, something that I think will be happening a a lot more often based on the Netflix release schedule for this year. Uh, But that's going to be Velvet Buzzsaw. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, the second movie we're discussing today reunites the director-actor combo of Dan Gilroy and Jake Gyllenhaal, who created one of my favorite movies of 2014, and that's Nightcrawler. In contrast to his case study of the of the low-life bottom feeders in L.A. society, Velvet Buzzsaw sees Gilroy take aim at, you know, I think what's fair to say is the other end of society, satirizing the high-end art world. Gyllenhaal puts on the mask of Morph Vanderwalt, a well-respected art critic whose reviews often make or break an artist's success and even their careers. Morph quickly finds himself in a sexual tryst with Josephina, played by Zaw Ashton, whose neighbor, Vetral Dees, dies unexpectedly one day, uh, demanding that his entire collection of awe-inspiring art be destroyed. In an attempt to win favor with her boss, uh, art gallery uh, curator Redora Hayes, played by Renee Russo, Josephina steals as much of the art as she is able to, but before long, strange, inexplicable things begin to happen to those surrounding the art. Scott, did Velvet Buzzsaw capture your attention and imagination like Gilroy and Hall's last outing Nightcrawler, or did this movie feel more like spectacle than substance? I have to say, I think Netflix feels right for this movie because it definitely doesn't have the universal appeal that Nightcrawler did. Like this is a, this is a weird movie. I mean, the, there's a lot of uh, visual horror that goes on here, and there's just the whole atmosphere of the film is is very oddball. But I can't say that I disliked that that aspect of it. I think that this movie, you know, I've talked about movies before where they're afraid to go over the top, right? Like they, they flirt with going over the top, but then there's like really self-serious parts. And I'm, I'm kind of like, just go for it. Like it, it don't be stuck in this middle ground. This movie doesn't have that problem. Like they go over the top. And so I do appreciate that. I appreciate how a lot of the performances are 
sort of almost tongue in cheek in the way that they they realize how over dramatic the lines that they're speaking are, and there's there's sort of a knowing way in in their performance about how over dramatic the the lines are. They they sort of play up that element, which I appreciated. But I don't know that I think the satire is particularly effective. I think it's just it's very it, it's not subtle at all. I mean this this whole idea about you know art criticism and profiting off of the the art of this this dead artist is uh, it, it hits you over the head pretty. Uh, pretty succinctly. You know, people have pointed out how weird it is that this movie does come from Netflix, though, on, on the other hand, because of sort of what the message of the movie is. But I mean, hey, Jake Gyllenhaal is always great to watch. And I think I said this on Twitter, but I think he he never plays the same role twice, which I think is the sign of a great actor. He, he's always willing to challenge himself. And I think he pretty much always succeeds in those challenges. And I think he he gives another uh, memorable performance here. I also, you know, I, I like horror movies, and, and I think some of the some of the kills, some of the visual horror that we get in this movie uh, is is pretty entertaining, pretty interesting. If not like super, uh, it, it, I guess it's a little uh, low budget looking, uh, and in some parts, but I don't I don't mind that when we're talking about sort of a schlocky horror movie, which I think this dives into at some points. So yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of a mixed bag for me. There, there are definitely, uh, it definitely does not grab you in the way that Nightcrawler does. I, I don't think it comes anywhere near the quality of Nightcrawler. But there are good things about it. I think it's worth a Netflix watch for you know s- some of those virtues that I've mentioned. If uh, you know, if it was in a theater, I don't know that I'd be saying rush out to see it. But it's you know, it's a solid and original movie, which I always appreciate. Yeah, I think. I think you said it, it. It's a mixed bag, and I think that there's no better way to describe this movie. Uh, wildly inconsistent. I think is probably a more accurate take, at least from my perspective. Uh, I remember I was reading a couple of reviews after this because I was trying to just like gather my thoughts, and I thought that it, once I'd gathered them enough, I was like, okay, I want to see how how off I am relative to other critics. I, I didn't know how people had yet responded to the movie because I saw it, you know, the day the day it came out on Netflix. I, I watched it that night. But I, I was reading a, a review by a critic that we both follow fairly closely, David Ehrlich of IndieWire. And he said, mm-hmm. uh, Gilroy's, Gilroy's film needed to be 60% better or 20% worse in order to transcend the forgettable silliness of his existence. And yeah. I think that's probably right. I mean, one of my biggest problems with the film is that, like, I'll say that the trailer did a good job billing this as as a as much more of a horror movie than, than Nightcrawler, which I think is firmly in the kind of the mystery thriller category. And this one's obviously much more horror thriller, at least it's, it's billed as such. But I often I found myself laughing at the horror scenes more often than I found myself kind of like, you know, gripping, gripping what I was sitting on or, or my leg or anything like that. I, I don't think this movie is particularly scary. And, and I but, think it, I think it tried to be, though. Well, that, that's interesting you say that, because I was going to say, I, I think you are meant to laugh more like that. Just the way that the movie was was tonally throughout the entire movie, the the way that the characters are so exaggerated in their mannerisms and, and line readings and stuff. To me, like, I think you're supposed to be sort of laughing at those horror, like, you know, almost B-movie sort of horror contraptions that kill some of these characters. So, I mean, maybe we just saw the movie a little bit differently, but I, I did. I, I laughed at some of the scenes, too, but I, I took that as more uh, movies where, or scenes where the movie was being successful. I think that certain parts of it, yes. I don't think the actual moments of horror are something you're supposed to be laughing at. Like, I don't think that, like, the scene where where 
is it um Tony Collette's character get her gets her arm chopped off in like the ball. Like I don't think that's that's something you're supposed to laugh at, but like while it was happening, I was laughing. Absolutely. Oh, that was absurd. I surely you had to, you were supposed to laugh at it. I mean, it, it it's absurd. Like yeah, again, I don't know. Maybe we just saw the movie in a different way, but like I, I the fact that the movie was so absurd in some of its kills suggested to me, hey, the filmmakers are in on the joke. Like they want you to be be laughing. I mean, it is a satire. I think that the part you're supposed to laugh at of that is like the moment afterwards where people are like the next day people come in and they think it's part of the art yeah. installation. Like that's what you're supposed to, to my from my perspective, at least that's what you're supposed to be laughing. Like that's the satire. But like the actual like killing itself, I think is supposed to be scary. And I mean, maybe I'm just misreading misreading this maybe maybe different perspectives here but to me like there's that element i mean all the all the i mean pretty much the only thing that i thought was like actually good horror was the 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 scene where i guess full spoilers i I should say no 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 we won't spoil it we'll talk about spoilers later but there's one there's one kill like there's one kill that i thought was actual horror towards the end of the film but we'll talk about that in a moment but i just thought most of this movie was complete i just thought this movie was kind of completely a joke it's like just silly and I don't, I don't, I do not think this movie is trying to be silly, but maybe, maybe we're misreading it. Um, or maybe you're giving more credit to Gilroy and, and the creators here than, than I am. Maybe this speaks to the fact that the movie just wasn't successful in whatever it was trying to do. The fact that both of us had different takes on what it was trying to do and that, you know, n- neither one of us maybe quite captured the, what it was going for. I mean, maybe that's, uh, maybe that speaks more to the movie than it does to, to us that, it didn't really pull off conveying well what what it was really going for, you know, in the movie. Yeah, and, and I guess part of, part of the way that I approached the movie is to, it was really determined by the trailer, right? Like, okay, what what tone is the trailer trying to set? Because ultimately, I, I think that is, I mean, that's the best message for me about how, like, what I should expect the tone to be in the actual movie. Now, to be fair, it's not Dan Gilroy who's cutting the trailer. It's Netflix, right? So what, is, what does Netflix think is going to be the best way to market the film? That's what they, you know, that's what they have to decide. But that doesn't mean that that's Dan, what Dan Gilroy was trying to do with the movie. So to your point, you know, it's hard there. And then, you know, the mixed messaging there maybe is what threw me off. And if that's so, then that's not the filmmakers, you know, that's not the filmmakers fault. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about the trailer. Like we've seen movies before where the trailer made it looks like something totally different. And then we were actually pleasantly surprised by the movie. So I don't know that I, per, I personally read too much into what the trailer is trying to say about the movie as as to how how we should ultimately interpret the movie but it's certainly something to consider yeah i mean and to the and to your point there if you know there and there when there are instances of the fact that we are pleasantly surprised by what a movie actually is versus what the what a trailer messaged it to be in this case i wasn't pleasantly surprised by what this movie was compared to what the trailer messaged it to be and to your and then to you know to circle back to the point you made earlier you know maybe that's that that is a problem with the film maybe yeah all right, uh, let's. Let, we're going to touch on all these things more as, as the conversation kind of evolves here. But let's just jump into the cast. You've already mentioned Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, magnificent. He plays more Vanderwalt, uh, kind of bisexual. Um, I've heard even that it's supposed to be gender fluid character in in this in this world. He's an art critic, and I mean, I'm I am totally on board with what you're saying about you know Jake Gyllenhaal is is a master of his craft in almost every role that he does. Yeah, I mean, I think this role just again shows he's he's not only a master of his craft, he's a master at playing weirdos, right? I mean, we can go back to Robert Graysmith and Zodiac. We can go back to Donnie Darko. We can go back to, of course, Lou Bloom and in uh, Nightcrawler. Like he knows how to play weird, but 
again, he never plays the same type of weird twice. Like there's just different shades of weird. And I think Mort is just another example of that. You know, he, he's a he's a goofy character in a lot of ways, the way that he dresses, the way that he speaks about art. Again, I don't think you're meant to take it seriously. And I think that that Gyllenhaal absolutely strikes the right note of, you know, he's he's a pretentious guy who feels like everything that he's saying is is extremely important. But ultimately, he, a lot of what he says is is really just words. And I think that probably applies to uh, a good number of people out there, critics or otherwise. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's it's really it's it's almost criminal that he's only been nominated for one Academy Award, in my opinion. And that's, of course, for his supporting role in Brokeback Mountain. Like he didn't get nominated for an Academy Award for Nightcrawler. How does he not get nominated for Nightcrawler? That's just uh, insane to me. Yeah, he got nominated for a SAG Award and, and a Golden Globe, but not an Academy Award. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think he's one of the best actors in terms. I mean, at least at the very least in terms of range that that is currently acting. Obviously, Daniel Day Lewis is up there as well, but he's, I mean, allegedly retired now. We'll see if he does anything else ever again. But to me, John Hall is one of the handful of people who you know you see that he's in a movie and my you know my butt's in a seat immediately. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree. I mean, you know, all all of those movies that I've talked about it his past roles, like some of my favorite movies, like of the decade and of all time. I mean, if you're talking about Zodiac, so yeah, he, he, he's an, he's absolutely a movie star at this point, but he continues to challenge himself, which is great. Cause I don't think a lot of movie stars do that. I think, you know, a lot of them feel they can just phone it in and Gyllenhaal probably could if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. And I think that speaks to his artistry. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned all the weirdos that he plays. I know we're getting like kind of off topic here for Velvet Bus on and I will circle back around and talk about his performance here. But, you, you know, he plays he's really good at playing weirdos. Uh, and he's also really good at playing normal people, right? Like he yeah. like th- I think of yeah. Nocturnal Animals. I think of um, End of Watch. I think uh, I mean, I'm sure there's there's obvious one that like Prisoners, Jarhead. I mean, the list goes on and on cool. about people where he plays very down to earth people um as well so it's not like he's just a, a master kind of w- weird weirdo actor he, he's good across the board up and down you know, you mentioned he never plays the same role twice and i couldn't agree more and i think that uh you're never going to see a role quite like this one again from him either I, you know i i can't imagine him uh or or really another character quite like this in a mainstream movie the the way that he's i mean flamboyant is maybe not quite the right word but it, it gets closer to capturing kind of who this this person is like uh, un, unabashedly morph i think is probably the best way to describe who morph vanderwalt or vanderwalt is and, and the respect that i mean obviously a huge part of the satire is is how over serious this character takes himself and how everyone else around him takes him right like the fact that you know the whatever 500 words he or fewer i can't remember what it, like how long his reviews are but you know the 500 words that he writes on a on a piece of art ultimately determines you know whether it sells for you know a hundred million or it doesn't sell at all like that's just uh, of course that's a satire and then i think that's really effective in the way that it does that and he's really effective in the way that he plays that role uh that you know the, his his ability to to show to, to play a character who you know takes himself too seriously to to think that not only i mean to your to what you said you know every word he says is, is so important but you know taking it to the next level is not just everything that he says but you know every every action he takes who he talks to the way he walks about an art room what he chooses to look at how he looks at it everything is so over serious and i think it's just so well done by him yeah, I mean, I think to borrow a phrase from the kids, I think this character is doing the most at all times. 
That's a that is honestly that's a great way to put it. But he yeah. he's fantastic. But you know, switch gears quickly here um, to someone who I think is is much 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 less fantastic in this movie, and in fact, I think really puts in a horrible performance is Zaw Ashton, who plays Josephina. I think I think I don't I don't know. I, I think I've seen her in a movie before, and I and she didn't stick out to me in a bad way. But in this movie, I think she was really bad. Well, I understand why you say that, and I don't necessarily. I don't know whether I agree or disagree. Again, this is it's sort of my my uns- being unsure about the tone of the movie because I think, you know, if you look at it from your perspective, like the perspective that you obviously took, yes, I I would absolutely agree that like this is a bad performance. On the other hand, I think if you look at it with a more tongue in cheek mindset, like I think she's purposefully being over dramatic, right? Like she's she's hamming it up on purpose because that's the tone of the movie. Like that's, you know, that's sort of what, how Dan Gilroy is portraying the art world in general as, as, you know, a lot of people who just take themselves really seriously when really we, we shouldn't take them that seriously. And so I think there is a world in which you could see her performance as actually being really successful at what she's trying to do. But I think you're either going to love it or hate it for sure. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's not even that she was over serious or overly dramatic. It was, it was something I was expecting from this character throughout the film. I just don't think she does a good job with it. And maybe, maybe the overacting is to your point, what you're trying to say here, like that maybe the goal was to overact the over dramatic or uh, a nature of the role. But, but for me, it just, it didn't work. Maybe I can see an argument for it was intentional uh, I'm going to reserve judgment on whether she's, you know, a good or a bad actress. Obviously, one performance isn't going to make or break someone's career, in my opinion. But I think that this performance left a lot to be desired from her. I don't. And, and you know, maybe it's that she she was just kind of shit out of luck and being next to uh, someone like Gyllenhaal through most of the movie, like almost ever, you know, almost all of her scenes are with are with Gyllenhaal. And, obvi- and he is much, much better at at this kind of performance than she is, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's bad. But I, I, I did think I ultimately came out thinking that she was pretty bad and, and was kind of satisfied by the end of the movie with what happened to her character. Yeah. Well, that's what I will say. I think that definitely we're talking about overacting, like it's a lot more deliberate when you're watching her than when you're watching Jake Gyllenhaal, who I think, you know, is, is in some sense overacting. Uh, but I think he, he's, it's a lot more effortless in the way that he, he does it because he is such a talented actor. But I, I think when you're watching her, definitely you you see someone making the conscious decision to play the role in a, in a very particular type of way. Yeah. And, and maybe there is some commentary around that is and maybe this is your point as well, that, that that's what she's trying to do because she's trying to fit into a world that she just doesn't fit into. Maybe. And then, and then you get the overacting part. And it doesn't feel right. But that being said, to me, it still didn't feel right. And you know, I don't think that that I didn't get the the sense from the movie that I was trying to say this person doesn't belong in this world. Um, of course, of course the, the movie is saying that she's trying to force herself into the world. Nevertheless, though, it just, it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. Understandable. Yeah. All right. Someone who is, is much better, uh, maybe not quite to the level of Hall in the movie, but someone who I, I appreciated her performance. That's Renee Russo who plays Redora Hayes, the kind of the gallery uh, owner. Yeah. This performance didn't do much for me. I mean, I, I like Renee Russo. I think she was great in Nightcrawler, to, uh, you know, to, to call back to Nightcrawler once again. I think she was great in that. And her uh, chemistry with Jake Gyllenhaal in that movie was really good, too. Here, I just don't think she's given very much to do. Like, she's supposed to be this big, imposing figure in the art world. Like, everyone's always talking about her. Everyone's t- always talking about Redora. But I don't think we really get a good sense of 
who the character is, you know, again, this doesn't have anything to do really with Rene Russo, but just how more how the character is written. But I guess I, I just wanted more from this character, although I think the end of this character's arc is very interesting. I mean, she she's the if you're like bucketing characters here, she's the kind of person who who really knows who she is and, you know, is the person who ultimately questions what she's doing over the course of the film, as opposed to, you know, someone like Jake Gyllenhaal's character who who doesn't, who is, like I said before, unabashedly morph and never really never really has to or or never really chooses to question his own existence. You know, of course, maybe you could argue at the end that there is some evolution and and character development on that front for Morph. But I think a lot of this movie to me is spent trying to, or, or I should say a lot of this character's time in the movie is spent establishing who she is, which I think Renee Russo does a really good job of. I, 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 yeah, it's not the best performance from the movie, but I do think that it's a good performance from her in the sense of, I, I do get the gravitas that, Everyone's talking about. I think that it doesn't quite fit with the tone of the film. We, being a satire, like it doesn't quite quite hit the right note, which maybe is what you're alluding to, or, and maybe uh, you felt more strongly than I did about that. But that being said, I think that uh, to your point, the, the way that this character develops over the course of the film and, and starts to question what she's doing and what she's done, I thought is where it gets more interesting. And I thought Renee Russo does a good job with that. Uh, again, doesn't doesn't really hold a candle to Hall's performance, in my opinion. But she's doing something very different, and I do agree that it's less than what John Hall was asked to do. Yes, I agree. Cool. So the, the, you know, there's a host of other supporting people in this cast. You have uh, a pretty memorable performance or, or uh, turn from John Malkovich. Uh, you have Tony Collette and, and a few others as well. Does anyone stick out in your mind? Not really. I, I always enjoy Tony Collette in movies, but. Again, not given enough to do here. Then we also have John Malkovich, who is just like the weird. I mean, obviously, John Malkovich always plays weird guys. But in terms of like this character goes nowhere, like he just sort of disappears from the movie at one point, And then we randomly see him again, like in the end credits. And I had no idea what at all at all what type of what kind of point they were trying to make with the end credits when we see him. However, we do get to see him shoot a basketball in one scene, which is just for some reason is a hilarious thing to watch John Malkovich shooting a basketball. Yeah, so I actually was very also confused by the the credit scene in this movie with John Malkovich drawing lines yeah. on a beach. And so I looked it up and apparently this character is is. So well, some people think this character is supposed to represent uh, Dan Gilroy, actually. And um, because Ooh. he apparently he so he had this epiphany on a beach. Uh, I don't know if it was for this movie or, or I think it was more to do with the fact that he was tied to Superman Lives, uh, a film that had been in development with Warner Brothers, but was canceled. And apparently he finally came to terms with that when he was on a beach. And that's what, what inspired the idea for that scene. So some people knowing that through an interview have said that John Malkovich is supposed to be Dan Gilroy, but I don't know how much weight to, get, to put to that. Yeah. I mean, I certainly didn't get that. And I, I don't think that's going to be clear to most moviegoers. So it, it was, it was just strange to me. I mean, art is strange, Scott. Art is strange. That's very true. This movie uh, definitely conveys that message very well. Uh, well, you know, speaking of strange things, why don't we just go ahead and move on to the plot of this movie, Scott? What what, what do you want to talk about the plot? I mean, there there is a lot here. I don't know how much of it's worth talking about, but um, there there is a lot. Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it uh, unfolds in a particularly original way. Like I think you can sort of telegraph where it's going. There were a few parts which, like, maybe were a little twisty, but like 
in terms of both in terms of like the actual what happens in the plot, but and also in terms of like the satire. I think it's pretty like you see where it's going. Like when you see that metal ball thing for the first time, like you know that something is going to happen. Like somebody's going to put their hand in there and something's going to happen. Like it's it's just it, it it sort of telegraphs itself in a lot of ways. Again, like I said, both with the satire and with what actually happens in the plot. Now, with that being said, you know, I still enjoyed seeing some of the kills, like the actual ways that they happen are, are kind of interesting. But again, I, I could see them coming. Yeah, for sure. I think that to, to see them coming is an understatement. And then I think there is definitely a point in the movie where, you know, like, all right, every, everyone's going to have to die in this movie. And and everyone does pretty much except for John Malkovich. Yeah. Um, but to me, yeah, I know we just spoiled it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, but to, to me, I think the to circle back around on something now that we're talking about spoilers that I mentioned at the beginning, kind of from the outset was, you know, there was only really one moment in the movie where I really felt like I got a sense of, of the horror film that I was kind of expecting from the movie. And that was the scene where Jake Gyllenhaal's character is killed by the uh, animatronic um, homeless man. Like that was a good scene of horror, but nothing else really captured that, that same visceral horror element to it. I I will say I did like the way that Redora ends up, biting it right at the very end. I thought that that was a uh, very inventive. Oh, to- totally agree. I think that was inventive. And in terms of creative kills, definitely the best. And for those of you who are still listening and don't care about being spoiled that she has a, so the, the name of the film comes from a tattoo on Redora's next yeah. neck called that. It just says velvet buzzsaw with then with the picture, of course, of a buzzsaw. And at the end of the film, it's like, it's like panning out. It's literally the credits are about to roll. And you see the the saw on her neck start to turn and just cuts open her neck, and she he gets velvet buzz sawed. She yeah. gets she gets velvet buzz sawed, uh, and then the credits roll. I think that that really that tells you how subtle this movie is, right there. That at the end, somebody is actually killed by a velvet buzz saw. Yes, indeed, and and you know the the creativity there. Again, I I guess it, you know I'm trying I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of Dan Gilroy and say like no 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 everything's supposed to be really on the nose. Uh, because, you know, art, art as a satire of art, it needs to be really on the nose to to get the point across. But I don't, I don't know if that works for me. Yeah, I mean, it gets style points. But yeah, I see what you're saying. More style than substance. But I yes. think <laughs> but I think that um, if, if we're running back the plot here, you have some weird subplots. I mean, we haven't really talked about anything to do with the plot at all, besides the fact that, you know, these Dece paintings um, have some sort of of curse, some sort of life imbued into them by D's who, when he dies, obviously heavily implying that his paintings killed him. I think Yeah, that you know, it, it, they need to be destroyed because they are too real or, or something of that nature. And then the people who are murdered by the paintings are the people who have profited from, uh, from the, from the works of art themselves. Right. That's why John Malkovich character doesn't die in the movie because he never profited from the art, whereas you have Josefina, uh, who you know stole the art, and and with, and and sorry, with Rene Russo's character Rodora sells the art. You have Jake Gyllenhaal who has the art in his apartment, who's um, benefiting from it. And then it's a really interesting kind of. I think I don't know if it's the last scene or or the scene before the last one where you have this guy on the street selling the art for you know a few bucks here and there. And I thought that was a really mm-hmm. interesting message at the end of the movie, Scott. What did you think of that? Yeah, uh, I mean that. I agree that that was uh, that that scene definitely hit home for me. Like, I think again, it's not subtle, but 
I think it was a very believable moment in an, in an otherwise sort of unbelievable movie where, yeah, you have this homeless man, you know, and, and what is it? It's like five bucks or something that he sells, you know, this painting that all these people were, you know, groveling over earlier in the movie. Um, I thought that was, that was interesting. And, you know, it just sort of gets at the, the idea about art sort of being a construct almost, or at least, you know, the type of art that these people are making. Um, and it's really the, it's about what, meaning we assign to it. And I, uh, I would have liked to see the movie go down that alley a little bit more, to be honest with you. Yeah, I agree. I think that Dan Gilroy finally found his message at the end that, you know, I agree with you that I would have preferred him to go for because the interesting, most interesting scene in the movie is this juxtaposition of this guy, exactly like you described, selling this Deese painting for five bucks when not just groveling over it, people were like, you know, bidding millions and millions and millions of dollars to have these paintings in their homes and, and the idea that art art's value is what you assign to it, I think is the most interesting message from the film. But instead you get this weird satire of people groveling over art and, and, and dying for, you know, trying to make extra money. Or at least that's how I kind of read the idea that, Oh, you stole these paintings and, and you went against this, this dying or this dead man's wishes to destroy it. And you profited from it and you get punished for it for being greedy. Whereas I think the more interesting message is definitely not necessarily critiquing, but presenting a case study of art's value itself. Mm -hmm. Maybe missing the mark there. And I guess kind of as a a final note, you touched on this at the beginning, but how effective do you think this movie was as satire of the art world? I think you kind of alluded at the beginning that, you know, you didn't quite think it, 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 it struck the right chord as satire of, of the art world. Well, I mean, I think that the it, it satirizes it for sure. I think the satire is just, a, you know, kind of obvious and played out. Like the characters, obviously, we understand, oh, they're so pretentious, like, you know, and, and this is, you know, how people in the art world are. And, you know, I, I don't think that the idea of like people profiting off of pe- people exploiting artists by profiting off of their work after they've died. Again, that's, you know, obviously another element here. I don't, I don't think that that's a particularly original idea. So the satire is probably not as pointed as I would have liked it to be. And I'm just curious where, like, put you know, put yourself in the creator or the director's chair here. What, where would you have liked the movie to have gone? Well, I mean, you know, kind of like we were we were talking about. I would have I would have liked more of an exploration of what art is, um, because I think there's some of it there, but they don't they don't they don't do a nice job of you know, just focusing on that, you know, they, they want to make a bunch of other points that probably are, are, are pretty obvious what, what kind of points that they're trying to make. But I, I would have liked to know, I, I would have liked to get more about, you know, again, just what, it, what is art? How do we derive meaning for art? Like what the, the actual profession of art criticism, like, is, is there any value in like actually criticizing art or is it really just words? And what do you think about our, our work criticizing art? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's 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 certainly uh, something that we'd like to know for the future of this podcast. I mean, you know, Dan Gilroy, what do you think about the work that we're doing here? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a good point. And there are moments more so than just that last scene that I think touched on it. I think that some of the points that they make with Morph's character about how it essentially presents art as art is valuable insofar as Morph Vandewalt thinks it's good. Yeah. And uh, obviously, that's a that's a that's a huge part of assigning value and and, st- and striking the chord and the me- and sending the message that we're talking about. But the problem is, to your point, they try to make a lot of other uh, a lot of other points, a lot of other themes that ultimately dilutes the message that I think would have been most interesting uh, for them to have stuck to. But so be it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, favorite scene from Velvet Buzzsaw. 
So there's one moment which made me laugh, and that I, I believe, I, I'm pretty sure this was intentionally humorous, this part, but Morph is having a conversation with these two women at a gallery at one point, and they're talking about an exhibition that this guy, Ricky, who is Josefina's ex, like, was having, and how it was the, the night before the exhibition that they're currently at, and they're having a conversation about that and how Morph kind of gave it bad reviews, and then one of the women... One of the women says, oh, hey, do you know Ricky got drunk last night and he and he, uh, you know, got in a car accident? And the other woman says, oh, I heard he was crashed or I heard he was crushed. And uh, and Morph is like, by the car. And she was like, no, by your review, which I thought was just a funny exchange. Yeah, I'm kind of going the other direction for a favorite movie. And as a, as opposed to funny moment, I, I really went with the the kind of the best moment for me in this film was one that I already mentioned, and that is Jake Hall's death. I think that 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 was the one scene in the movie that really hit the hit the note I was expecting the movie to hit and and no real moment in the movie for me surpassed that. Yeah, I mean, again, like I said, some of the kills were definitely memorable. I could have gone with one of those as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Velvet Buzzsaw. Well, maybe what we're doing here is completely arbitrary and these scores are meaningless and don't actually mean anything. Who knows? But uh, I'll give it a six point two for whatever uh, worth you may assign that. Yeah, and it's important for you to know that Morph Vanderwald is not what's assigning the worth to our scores. Yes. It's, it's it's you. And, and for me, I'm, I'm coming out roughly similar, a little bit lower, but 5.9. Yep. All right, Scott, that will do it for our discussion of Velvet Buzzsaw. We're going to take another short break. And when we return, we have a few more movies to hit before we wrap up today's episode with some news. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back for part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as I've already mentioned, we have a few more movies to get through today. Uh, Maybe a few more than we usually do, but we both have seen uh, the Netflix documentary Fire based on, of course, the Fire Festival, uh, which is, you know, kind of really captured the public uh, attention and imagination uh, right now. And, and, you know, as well of a certain niche group of of the U.S. population as well, back when it happened a few years back. Scott, what did you think of this documentary? It's great. I mean, it's insane. I mean, somehow this like Firefest story never like I completely missed it, which is crazy because I am a big music person. I'm a big, you know, music festival person. I'm always on Twitter and stuff, which is, you know, where a lot of this went down. Um, So I'm really surprised that I hadn't heard anything about it. But man, you can you can imagine like the experience that I had watching this, not knowing anything about really the Firefest or not knowing where it was going next. I mean, it is insane. Like it's literally just one, it, it, just when you think it can't get any worse, like it gets worse. Right. And I think that in terms of the actual documentary itself, like it's not particularly like inventive. It doesn't do anything like super original or anything in the way that it tells the story, but it's got such a great story to tell that I think it's, it's definitely very successful ultimately because it, it tells that story. And, you know, they, they, get, they don't, I haven't watched the Hulu one, but they actually have Billy McFarlane to interview in that one. So maybe that one is even more effective. Uh, but I think they got a lot of, all, all the sides of the story sort of do get represented here from the, you know, the actual people 
who went to the Firefest, the Bahamian people who like got involved in helping set up the Firefest and then of course never really profited from it. And then also the people who were on the inside, you know, alongside Billy McFarlane and Ja Rule really setting this thing up. Um, and so I think we get a nice wide range of perspectives, uh, but with everyone pretty much agreeing that this whole thing was a crap storm. Um, and I don't think there, there's ever, will be ever, will ever be anything like it again, but I think it, you know, there, there's definitely some critiques there, uh, some social critiques about, you know, the way we use social media and, and Instagram in particular, the way that, uh, what you see is not always what you get. Um, sometimes what you get is two pieces of cheese and a piece of bread. I mean, luxury meal, if I've ever seen one. Yeah. Yeah. Quality stuff. And that, that salad. So appetizing. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that, you know, to, to call this movie or sorry, I should say to call this event, this documentary insane is an understatement. The fact that this happened and this isn't uh, fiction is, is something else because Billy McFarland, all first thing, grade a psycho or a sociopath, maybe is a better way yeah. to put it. Like this guy just does not get it. He doesn't understand other people. Or maybe he understands other people really well and just doesn't give a give a crap about them. It's probably the better way to put it because yeah, oh, go ahead. That's the thing. He was able to manipulate all these people, and you know, you see all all of everyone in the movie is was talking about how oh, you know, I I continued along with this project even though everything you know said that everything in my brain said this is never going to work. I continued on because of Billy. Like so, I think he's he's an insanely good salesman, but to everyone else's detriment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't it's it was really interesting to me to see just touch on a brief point there. It was really interesting for me to see the the fact that um, Ja Rule has kind of gone on with it seems relatively unpunished for this. And then mm-hmm. he, he ended up making the the app or at least the idea behind the app fire with I think it was oh gosh, it was one of the one of the developer app developers, you know, they ended up making the app, but one of the most, uh, and I think, or I think his name was M, M. David Lowe and David. I'm not sure how he pronounces his name, but I think it's that guy, the cre- kind of the creative director behind the app itself. But mm-hmm. kind of, the, I mean, I think one of the stories, there's so many sub stories in here that have captured the imagination and, and just left people losing their minds almost. And, and not least of which has to be Andy King, who is kind of one of the producers. <laughs> oh, who literally was ready to your point about manipulating people was ready to go, you know, essentially give, give someone a blow job to make this festival happen to make the or to deliver the water for the event. And he was told by uh, Billy basically asked him to, to go do this thing. Uh, if not explicitly, then implicitly. And, and to me, it's not that I don't believe that something like this happened. It just leaves me. I think it really puts it in perspective, you know, what level uh, uh, that Billy McFarland is on. Yeah, I mean, Andy, not all, he definitely got the worst of it because not only does he he have that in, incident which you're talking about, of course, he didn't actually have to do what he thought he was going to have to do. But then later in the movie, he ends up when the, the Bahamian locals start like coming after, basically coming after the Firefest people uh, demanding their money. He like jumps in the back of a truck and like hides out in the back of the truck until he can like safely get away. The guy definitely had the worst of it, but probably uh, probably some of his own creation. Yeah, I mean, at least some some of it certainly is, and and that's right. I had almost forgotten about that. That is also a, a kind of a ridiculous thing to think about. I think for me though, what I took away from the documentary, and you know, they they talk about the lawsuit that you know these these really kind of rich 
20 something, maybe 30 something white people have filed against, you know, Bill, Billy McFarland and, and, you know, fire in, in general. And, and what I, what I took away from the movie is that I don't actually feel that bad for these people who went to the concert. Yeah. Like, of course, you know, they paid for something and they didn't get it. And that's wrong. I can understand that. But the people that I think, you know, whether intentional or not, the people that I think are ultimately the victims of this crime are the Bahamian locals, right? Like there's these people who, you know, you talked about how they worked so hard and, and were exploited almost, not even almost, they were exploited to try and make this festival happen. And not only did they not quote unquote profit from it to use your words, but they never even were compensated at all. That to, to say that they yeah. to say that profit almost belies the point that you know they weren't even compensated for the work that they did, and and right. you know don't even think about the, the idea of profit from it. Uh, they didn't they didn't break even at all. Yeah, and I mean these people certainly don't have the same resources that I mean. You think about how many people, how much people were paying to actually go to the fire fest and like you realize these people are going to be fine like yeah maybe they had a miserable day or something but like they're going to go back to their nice lives the bahamians don't get that luxury and right as you said it's not just about the profit it's about just compensation um and they weren't afforded any of that yeah i mean absolutely and and i think that that was you know that's kind of what i left the movie thinking i remember i don't know if it's the final the final interview that they do or where it is, but the, like, the last interview they do with the Bahamian woman who kind of ran the bar and was doing the catering for, for the event that, that one, I mean, it was really, really sad to watch. Yeah, I, I agree. That's definitely the takeaway for sure. And I have to say that the, the, my favorite person in this documentary uh, outs, you know, and in terms of who I enjoyed constantly <laughs> was Mark Weinstein, who was the music festival consultant. I don't know if you remember him. I'm not sure I do. He was the one who was like, I was a part of this, but like it really felt like he was using this documentary as a way to like just rip on Billy McFarland. Yeah. Yeah, Just absolutely roast him, which I mean, okay. First thing, Mark Weinstein, I'm so sorry about your last name. That really sucks. Um, Second, (laughs) I, I think that it was really interesting to me to see him use this as this outlet, but, and he kind of acknowledges this, but I'm like, you're kind of almost as culpable as, Billy in this like there were so many I mean there were moments where he talked about how he's like oh like I was telling them they couldn't do this I couldn't do this and it really felt that he was trying to like kind of abscond himself from responsibility uh, uh, for the event but he ultimately did go along with it like he didn't he didn't stop it he didn't report it he didn't do any of these things and y- yes part of that is of course the control that, that maybe Billy exercised over everyone involved in this process, but also, you know, I, I kind of left the movie thinking like, you know, you're, you're really trying to sound holier than thou in the sense of holier than Billy, which you probably are at the end of the day, but ultimately, you know, you're, you're, you're still a part of this and you're really trying to wash your hands of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and I guess a final two final points to land on. And one was involved with your letterbox review and the Microsoft simulator pilot, <laughs> which I just really loved. I mean, how is that not terrifying? Like, I mean, forget this, how he learned it. The, 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 the descriptions of flying on a plane with him were just disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Like, how is that not terrifying to get up in a plane with this guy? I mean, uh, presumably they knew that that was the only experience that he had. Man, I, it just makes me think of airplane. <laughs> yeah, but the, sec- the second point that I want to leave with is, is just how... Uh, the the real exclamation point they put on Billy McFarland's story is like not only did he do this before fire with Magnesis, but while on parole yeah. or while out on bail, he then does it again with yep. New York City, you know, VIP, whatever it was. That was the most insane thing to me because, like, 
you get to the end of the Firefest stuff and you think, oh, well, it's over now. And this guy just hasn't learned his lesson. Like you said, it's it's the definition of insanity. I mean, I don't know if it's insanity or just pure sociopathic to to think that you can. I mean, maybe there's no real line between those two things. But to me, it just it seemed like messaging that, like, you know, this guy, does, well, one, maybe doesn't get it. But two, does if he does get it, he certainly doesn't care. All right, Scott, what did you what did you think of this one? If we're going to put a score on it. 8.2 really solid watch like I think a lot of people have have watched it and have have been uh, captivated by the story and uh, you know if you haven't it's right there on Netflix and it's absolutely worth your time yeah I totally agree a, a very reasonable way to spend 97 minutes or whatever the actual runtime is and I'm coming out again very similar a little bit lower but 8.0 yeah all right Scott on the basis of sex you saw this movie recently yeah so I saw this a few weeks ago um it was MLK Day, so I decided I wanted to go see a movie about a great American, but there wasn't one out, so I saw this movie instead. Uh, I'm just kidding, of course. But um, I, Although I may have some disagreements with, uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg about her judicial philosophy, I think what everyone can agree on is that she was a fantastic attorney, uh, civil rights attorney, and what she did for gender equality. I mean, she's done as much for gender equality in this country as anybody, um, and Wisely, that's what the movie, that's what this movie focuses on. Um, of course, this is the second movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that came out. This, this was a 2018 movie, technically. And this is the second, in addition to the documentary, which is, of course, up for the Oscar. This one, however, is, you know, a more dramatized Hollywood story directed by Mimi Later. And it stars Felicity Jones as RBG, um, Army Hammer, plays her husband, Martin. And it's really the story of, f- first of all, of RBG's, you know, first, first day is in law school as you know attending harvard law school where they they only accepted i think like six women in her class there's a there's a very uh, interesting scene which actually happened in real life where they all go to dinner like the sam waterston who for once actually plays a villain in this movie he is like the dean of harvard law school he it invites all of the the six women in the class to dinner and while at dinner asks each of them to stand up and explain why they think they got their slot or why they the, they earned their slot over some man that they could have given it to, which is just horrible to think about. But then it goes on from there. We get a little bit about, you know, the medical trouble that um, Marty Ginsburg had. He actually did pass away a few years ago, though, which is interesting, though, because the movie makes it sound like he had, you know, he, he didn't have it, it, he was going to die young. Like he, he's given a very low chance to, to live at a very young age because he has testicular cancer. But Obviously, he survived a long time. He he survives throughout the the whole movie and, and for a long time afterwards. But the movie really then focuses in on one particular case, which I actually wasn't familiar with, and it isn't really one of the more notable cases in in RBG's uh, you know litany of cases, but was sort of her first foray into the world of gender discrimination. And the movie gets it right in terms of the historical background and in the fact that. The way that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was eventually able to get the the courts to acknowledge that hey, gender discrimination is actually a thing, because they they were they were want to to uh, acknowledge that was by taking these cases where it was actually men who were discriminated against and not women, and by doing that, she sort of backdoors in this way uh, of of getting the courts to recognize gender discrimination because of course the courts at this point were mainly just old boys clubs. So, I mean, that's really interesting. I appreciate the fact that the movie, um, you know, gets that historically right. I definitely think that I probably enjoyed certain parts of this movie because 
I'm a law student. I like enjoyed them more than I would if I wasn't a law student. I mean, for instance, the the end of the movie is an appellate argument, which like you know is what I uh, make during moot courts competitions and stuff. So like it, it was uh, it was great for me, you know, just just watching that and the fact that in in like if this was a sports movie, this is where the big uh, you know game would be, and like the the appellate argument is is the big game here, which is you know with all my experience with mock trial and stuff, that's that's how I've always thought of mock trial. So it's 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 good to th- see a movie that uh, that thinks of it in the same way. And I think the performances are outstanding. Like uh, Felicity Jones, I talked about her on our awards episode. I think she's absolutely great. Um, I don't understand why this movie has evaded Oscar contention because it's it's pretty standard Oscar fare. But I mean, it's a really good example of, of standard Oscar fare. But particularly Felicity Jones' performance, I think, is is worthy of of note. Uh, sh- she does a great job of bringing this figure who is sort of become larger than life, like we think of, you know, the notorious RBG and people, you know, hold her in such high regard, probably not justifiably, but, you know, that I think it's great to see the way that Felicity Jones humanizes her and say, hey, you know, she's just another lawyer. And there's some really good supporting performances as well. Like Kathy Bates shows up as this, uh, you know, older attorney who Ginsburg kind of idolized and, but was, of course, was not successful in bringing sex discrimination claims. But, Kathy Bates is always great, and she's she's great here as well as you know a, a more jaded version of of uh, Ginsburg. And then I also want to give a shout out to Kaylee Spaney, who plays Jane Ginsburg, Ruth and Marty's daughter. Of course, Kaylee Spaney was also she had a small role in uh, in Bad Times at the El Royale earlier this year, and I think she absolutely makes an impact. I think she's going to be a star based on this performance because one of the most interesting parts of the movie is her relationship with her mother and the fact that they're both, you know, they're obviously both feminists, but they're uh, in a very different sort of way. Like Ruth's version of feminism is is very more, is a lot more classical. Like her, her, she has a very classical understanding of feminism. Whereas, you know, this movie takes place in the seventies and Jane is getting caught up and she's going to uh, Gloria Steinem. He's, she's going to Gloria Steinem rallies and she's, you know, getting caught up in this new wave of feminism that happened in the 1970s. So the tension that occurs between the two characters is really interesting um, because of, obviously they're working for the same goal, but they're advocating very different approaches for it. And one, one line that, that really stuck out to me that I really loved is where Jane tells her mother, it's not a movement if everyone's sitting down. Um, and I think Kaylee Spaney really cuts a, a very uh, memorable presence on screen. Uh, so yeah, this movie's great. Uh, you know, it's a standard by the numbers biopic for sure, but it's a story that not a lot of people are going to be familiar with, I think. And it's an absolutely an important story. And I, I, yeah, I love movies about the law and this one gets it right. So 8.5, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Great score. I mean, it's still in theaters, uh, I think. Um, well, maybe by the time this episode does get out, it may not be in theaters anymore. But uh, as of the time of recording, there's still a couple showings a week at one of the theaters in Boston, which I may or may not make. I probably won't get to it, but I, I will definitely catch this when it comes up on release, you know, whether it hits a streaming service or whether, you know, it's up for rent. I'll, I probably will see it. And you no, know, Scott, if you want more Kaylee Spaney, all you have to do is go rewatch Vice because she's in it. Who is she in Vice? She's young Lynn Cheney in Vice. Okay, well, now that you've told me, I don't have to rewatch it. Not that I would have anyway. Um, but if, in in all and a little bit more seriousness, you should go see Pacific Rim Uprising because she's in that. And uh, although that movie is not is not great, uh, she she does she does a she has a fairly yeah, maybe she should have been my actor to watch in 2019. You know, she's in for a couple movies this year, but I'm not sure. 
Actually, no, I think she's only in for one movie this year so far, uh, at least that I know of. Uh, But she is doing a TV miniseries called Devs. Um, I'm not sure what that is, to be honest. Hope to see more of her role. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And I'm sure she will. She had a busy 2018, um, but we'll see how busy she stays in the next couple of years. She probably get a few roles. Yeah. Awesome. Well, the last movie we're going to touch on before we hit some news is Beautiful Boy, another kind of wrapping up 2018 film here. It's, it's a it's a movie that is you know, produced and distributed by I don't know if it's actually produced. No, it's produced by big by, by Plan B Entertainment, Brad Pitt's production company, but it's distributed by Amazon Studios. So this is on Amazon Prime Video uh, if you have that, uh, which is where I saw it. And I was like, look, it's free. I've got two hours. I'm going to watch this movie because I'd heard really good things about Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell in this movie, even though it might have a few flaws. And I think that's exactly right. I think that Timothy Chalamet, when I watched this movie, I wondered how he didn't get nominated for Best Actor relative to the other nominees that were in the category that the that the Academy chose. Uh, this movie is is a biographical drama. To call it a biopic might be too strong, but technically it is, I suppose. Um, directed by Felix Van Groningen, who's a name that I wasn't as familiar with, although I know that he has done other things before, um, even though I hadn't necessarily seen them. He, he, I think mostly foreign language stuff, which is why I hadn't seen it. But it, it's it's based on a true story by um, David Sheff, who uh, is the father, played by Steve Carell, whose son Nick Sheff is addicted to crystal meth. And this movie explores addiction in a really powerful way. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a movie about a father and a son and a father who's trying to come to terms with his son's addiction and also try to figure out, you know, what what can I do for my son? And that's Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet are really, really wonderful in this movie. And I talked about it a little bit on my Letterboxd review about how this movie succeeds in spite of its direction. I don't think that Felix Van Groningen does that great of a job directing this movie, but the performances in the story itself are so powerful that it that it, it succeeds nevertheless. And I really, really like this movie, Scott. I, I strongly recommend it. Uh, Steve, I did, I did see a couple of reviews that were were kind of with a few raised eyebrows about some of the things that that happen in this movie that don't really get discussed very much. Um, and I can see the the point there. There are there are elements of the story that are kind of uh, kind of WTF moments, and and then you you just move on with it. You move on with your life, and you have to live on with it. But I think the ultimate overarching story here is that i mean obviously addiction is is a really difficult thing to deal with and but i think that the the power of the performances from steve carell who plays the father who's you know tries everything to understand what his son is going through even to the point where you know he himself i think snorts a line of cocaine and then and then it's never talked about again in the movie which is the thing that i was just referring to uh and then timothy chalamet who who the entire movie kind of puts on this persona of, of addiction and really struggling with personal accountability and responsibility. And then, and then the struggles of staying clean, there's more that of course could be done. And I'm sure there's more to the story itself because you know, it's, it's the span of a couple of years and, and you know, you only have an hour, you know, two hours to, to explore that. But it, it's, it's a real shame to me that this couldn't be better explored with better director because it is a really good movie uh, with two really strong lead performances. I, I think that, you know, St- Steve Carell is only overshadowed by Timothy Chalamet. And, and uh, it's it's, you know, I mean, everyone already kind of feels this way. But Timothy Chalamet, you know, if he keeps this up, he's going to have an absolutely outstanding career, Scott. And I'm giving this movie a 7.8. 
Yeah, you know, it's one that just missed our radar um, and, and, you know, kind of fell out of it with it fading from Oscar talks, but I'm definitely willing to check it out, and I do enjoy these two actors for sure. Yeah, you know, and I, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before, but I, I maybe I did when we were talking about Vice, but I've heard that Steve Carell is is probably going to go back to some more comedic roles after, you know, the, the last 12 or so months he's had with very serious dramatic roles. And I think, personally, I think that's a real shame because although he is a very funny actor as well in the particular roles those roles don't resonate with me nearly as much as these dramatic roles that i've seen him in playing i think he's been absolutely spectacular yeah i've said this before but like i don't i have no connection to the office whatsoever i never watched the show never have been able to get into it but i still like steve carell i think he's he's done a great job for himself outside of uh you know the office which is obviously his most notable role yeah, I totally agree. I've tried a couple times to get into the office and I've been told I just have to power through the first season to actually start enjoying it. But to me, um, you know, I've watched four or five episodes several times and never, never felt it, never felt it. And yeah. I haven't I haven't been willing to invest the time to get to apparently what is the better seasons of The Office. So be it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page. All right, Scott, let's wrap things up with some news here. Where there's a lot that's been happening. Um, this is a little bit a while ago, but it did happen since our last recording, is that there is a J.R.R. Tolkien biopic that has been confirmed that to be in production. Yeah, I mean, you know I'm not a Lord of the Rings person, but J.R.R. Tolkien, I know, like ha- had a very interesting life and you know was friends with C.S. Lewis. And I- I'd- I'll be interested to see what direction this movie goes in because I think there are so- you know, some interesting elements of his backstory that I would absolutely be want to see on the big screen. Yeah, I'm very curious as well what direction this is going to take because, I mean, obviously J.R.R. Tolkien, best best known for his work with the Lord of the Rings universe, right? That, that whole Middle Earth universe. And, you know, so well known for what he was able to accomplish by, you know, literally, in, you know, inventing and creating his own language, you know, let alone the stories and the characters that he brought to life. But I'm, I'm curious if this is going to be more of a how did these characters come to his mind or something that explores more about his personal religiosity, which was what you kind of were alluding to with, with C.S. Lewis. I think it could be really interesting. And I'm curious if it'll look more like the, not, not the Christopher Robin movie from this year, but the, uh, the one with uh, Donald Gleason that was more of a biopic of A.A. Milne. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would like to see sort of maybe a combination of what you're talking about, like maybe the way that his religious faith affected the stories that he told because I know like without being intimately familiar with Lord of the Rings I know that there's definitely religious uh imagery and, and uh, you know that the fact that he was a religious person is is apparent throughout the you know all of his books yeah absolutely Scott in, in in news that won't be too surprising to either of us I think and maybe even our listeners as well uh Fantastic Beast 3's production has been pushed back and I'd suspect it to maybe recraft some of its story elements and, and work a little bit more on the screenplay yeah, I don't know that I have too much to add. <laughs> I mean, ho- hopefully this means that the third movie will be will rebound from what we can both say, even though I did like the movie more than you did, what we can both say was a kind of a failed outing in terms of the story, at least, uh, of the second movie. Yeah, I mean, I- I'm kind of out on this franchise at this point, but, you know, it- it's kind of like Jurassic World. You know, if we have to see it, we have to see it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's fair. I think this these movies consistently have been better than Jurassic World. Like, sure, like has Harry Potter and the Wizarding World really lost your faith to the level of Jurassic World? The Fantastic Beasts franchise has. I mean, certainly not Harry Potter, but like I, you know, I said this when we talked about Crimes of Grindelwald, but like I 
have no connection to any of these characters whatsoever. Um, and, you know, I have no connection to the Jurassic World characters. I mean, I, I just don't feel like there's a lot of what I loved about Harry Potter that remains in this franchise. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but, you know, more Jude Law, more Dumbledore. I mean, that's as Harry Potter as it gets besides Harry. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I you know, I did really like Jude Law as, as Dumbledore, so we'll see. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, you know, another movie development news. Bumblebee is getting a sequel. Yeah. I, I mean, I will make a vow to you right now. I'm going to see Bumblebee before the sequel comes out. Uh, it may be the day before it comes out, but I will see it at some point just because I can't avoid the hype for, for you know, much longer. It's obviously a great film. Yeah. You know, Scott, I saw it at the end of the year and in, in my flurry of movies right before to, to close out the year. And I really enjoy it. And I think that you're going to really enjoy it when you do see it. I think this kind of falls in the category of Love, Simon. I think that you might like Love, Simon more than than Bumblebee. But there are things about Bumblebee that, yes, still don't quite resonate uh, to, to me. But it does so much more right than it does wrong, which isn't something that I've been able to say about the Transformers franchise ever. But at the definitely since the first movie, which I mean, have you seen any of the We've talked about this. Have you seen any of the Transformer movies? You haven't, have you? Uh, no. Yeah. Well, don't worry about the other ones. Just go see Bumblebee, which uh, I'm glad to hear you vow that you will see it before the sequel. Yeah. I mean, uh, I uh, that is my solemn vow to you. Well, mo- moving on from solemn vows, I think that uh, one movie that that you know when I when you heard about this, you were really excited about. We getting some more news about, it, and that's the, about the Dune remake. That's you know Dennis Villanueva's Dune remake. Javier Bardem and Oscar Isaac have both joined this movie. Scott, I mean, I, I didn't know if I could be more hyped about this, but these two actors are in it now, and I am more hyped. Yeah, I know. When I saw this news, I was like. I can't even, I'm not that I, again, like you, not that I could be any more on board, but I am now like this, this movie better be good or I'm going to be very disappointed. Yeah. And kind of pivoting towards, you know, other movies that could be uh, really interesting based on some recent, some recent news announcements and, and, and actually kind of in contrast to this, taking me from not really at all interested in what this movie was going to do to, oh my, this could actually be really interesting. And that's the news involving the suicide squad sequel or i should say which is being titled the suicide squad which i just think is so dumb but james gunn has you know you know changed changed teams although not by choice maybe uh he was of course fired from guardians of the galaxy volume three's production after some tweets surfaced that were uh i think we can all agree were a little unsavory but uh he has been picked up by warner brothers in dc and he is directing the suicide squad yeah i mean this isn't the greatest combination in my my brain like I did not like the first Suicide Squad. I don't know that I necessarily think James Gunn should be getting a job like this so soon after you know his what what went on with his tweets. But I think he he's a, he's a solid director, so he could probably breathe some life into a, a franchise or you know a series that desperately needs it. Setting aside the fact that I agree with you that I'm I. I guess I'm not surprised because it's it makes a lot of sense from a business perspective for Warner Brothers, I think. But uh, a little bit saddened that this wasn't taken a little bit more seriously for a longer amount of time at the very least. But that being said, you know, if there is a I if you know, if there is an intellectual property in the DC universe that correlates best to Guardians of the Galaxy, I'd imagine it's the su- it's Suicide Squad. Definitely. So it's probably going to you know, this this movie's, you know, th- this this sub franchise within DC's. Uh, universe probably just went from you know zero to hero uh, and when we see this movie air i mean we're, we'll see what the critic reviews of it are and how fans re- receive it as well and you know whether this movie 
you know what what this movie makes in terms of dollar figures obviously time will tell but you know scott i wouldn't be surprised if this if this movie one is great and two it does gangbusters at the box office yeah i I think both of those things will probably prove true whenever it does get released yep but you know what and whether or not you feel good about that it's neither here nor there there's obviously a, a, a pretty strong split in not what people think of the tweets themselves i think but of uh whether or not james gunn should or should or shouldn't be held accountable for it, you know, a decade later or whatever it was. Uh, clearly, the Guardians of the Galaxy cast felt a certain way. Some people agree with them. People like me, you know, I think probably Disney made the right decision. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree. All right. In other DC news, Scott Aquaman did surpass that one billion dollar mark. I know that, you know, maybe that leaves you scratching your head and maybe I don't know if it leaves me scratching my head. I think I get it. But this obviously bodes well for DC movies in the future. It seems at the very least that people are on board with the the new vision for DC, you know, whether or not the next movie can be like I, I should say to back up. I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that it can be of the same quality of Aquaman going forward, but that if the you know the direction that Aquaman was going is the direction that they continue taking with you know Shazam is the next movie coming out here in just a couple months time or a month and a half now that will we'll see how it progresses from there but Scott does it surprise you that this movie made a billion dollars it does I mean even the most optimistic projections I don't think thought that this was a, a, a possibility but I, I don't know I think maybe the holiday release combined with you know the fact that he got Decent critic reviews. Uh, obviously, you know, we weren't huge fans, but I mean, it's it was fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, I believe. I think that that probably, you know, boded well for, for DC and maybe explains why the movie did as well as it did. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it, it was definitely an interesting note, right? Like, it's not weird for a Marvel movie to break a billion, but for DC, it's a big deal. It's I think yeah. it's their first movie to break a billion since The Dark Knight Returns. And it is the, the highest grossing Dark Knight Rises, you mean? Oh, yes. Dark, yeah. <laughs> Dark Knight Returns, I think, is the comic book line that inspired Batman versus Superman. But yeah, that's the Frank Miller comic. Yeah. yeah, whoops. Yeah, Dark Knight Rises. And it did, it did, Dark Knight Rises was the highest grossing, at least worldwide, DC comics movie. Um, domestically, the Dark Knight was the highest grossing, but, and it still is. But it was interesting to see that, you know, Aquaman now, the highest grossing DC comics movie um, of all time. Yeah. Weird to think about. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. Okay. Another kind of you know, tangential news, right? Zack Snyder obviously was a big part of this kind of first phase of, of the DC universe that, you know, maybe DC is moving on from, but he is, is going to make his return to directing uh, for Netflix and he's going to be directing uh, Army of the Dead. He's one of my least favorite directors. I, I haven't been shy about that, but, you know, he did crack his teeth with Dawn of the Dead was kind of his first movie that you know, put him on the map. And I think, you know, it's a pretty well-regarded movie. I haven't seen it, but, you know, maybe this is more his speed. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I after having been hurt so many times, I, I approach every Zack Snyder uh, movie with a high amount of caution. High amount of caution. I love that. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what it is. I, I mean, I haven't been the biggest fan of just, you know, zombie movies in general. And uh, we'll see. I'll, I mean, it's on Netflix, right? Like you're more likely to watch it because it's on Netflix. Yeah. I mean, that that's extremely true. All right. Sticking with Netflix here. Netflix paid a reported $45 million for Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy, Scott. That seems like an outrageous sum to me. What is this movie? You know, it's based on a book by J.D. Vance about the Appalachian values of his Kentucky family and their relation to their social problems of his hometown oh. of Midtown, Ohio. 
I've heard about this book. Yeah. Yeah. It, it won. I mean, so the book itself, I'm not sure if it won awards, but I know that it's, um, I think it's audiobook won an audio award for nonfiction. So it's a, it's a memoir. It's a, it's a memoir. He, uh, I mean, he does, he usually does great work. So, I mean, it, this, I have heard a lot about this book now, the more that you talk about it. So we'll see. $45 million though for, I mean, I don't know if the movie yeah. is, is done yet. I don't, I don't know what its status is, but that seems like for a movie, that's a lot of faith. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a lot of faith, but you know, maybe that's uh, part of the soul of hillbillyology. A lot of faith. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, last point on Netflix here. Um, so getting, getting near, uh, the end of this one, but I think this is probably the biggest deal and worth talking about the most. But you know, over the past few weeks, Netflix has actually joined the MPA. They're now an official member of the MPAA, which means that their movies are going to get official MPAA ratings. Scott, it's not going to be like the the TV mature or the TV thirteen ratings anymore. It's going to be the official MPAA ratings, which you know, to you and me and the average movie viewer, may not mean that much. But for the world of of movies and, and movie production and distribution, it's a big deal. I mean, you, you say it might not mean much to me, but actually the, the area of movie ratings is actually something I feel a, 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 not a small degree of passion about because I think that the MPA rating system is so hopelessly broken and has been for a long time. Um, if you go watch the documentary, this film is not yet rated. You know, I, I, I had always had my doubts, but that the documentary really opens your eyes to really how ridiculous and arbitrary a lot of the criteria by which the MPAA rates these movies are. And, you know, the fact that something like eighth grade, right, which should probably be seen by every single 13 year old is getting an R rating because of, you know, a few bad words, uh, you know, not a few things that these same 13 year olds are going to hear every single day at school. As opposed to, you know, movies like I, I can't think of one that comes to mind, but, you know, there are a lot of horror movies are very violent, uh, like Miss Bala, for example, which just came out, I think is an example that people have touted of a movie that, uh, you know, has all of this gun violence. But, hey, it's PG-13 because, no, we don't actually see anybody bleed like there's no blood, which I mean, it sends the wrong message. Right. Because, like, it does it. First of all, like. We, we shouldn't value, like, vi violence shouldn't be more acceptable to a younger audience. And second of all, like, it's sending the wrong message to say, hey, you can shoot all these people. There's never going to be any blood. It doesn't really, like, appropriately co convey the actual consequences of violence. Um, so I think this system is broken. That's probably not completely related to what we're talking about with Netflix joining the MPAA. But I will be interesting, just interested to see if there's any, you know, tension that results here. Like it, it is interesting for sure that whereas the MPAA rating system is designed to, you know, prevent people underage from from seeing movies, seeing mature movies. Like now that you have Netflix, right? Like, and it's just a click away. Like, does this in any way affect the access that like teenagers have to R-rated movies? Like. Uh, you know, that they they couldn't go to the theaters and see like, I mean, it, it will have some effect. So, I mean, it's interesting to think about for sure. Yeah. It, the whole idea of, I mean, I, I don't have a privacy or like a, or sorry, a content lock on my Netflix account for obvious reasons. But, you know, as a parent who's looking at these reviews and who reads in like detailed MPA ratings, maybe before they decide whether or not their children should see it, it'll be interesting to see what that effect has for Netflix, which obviously I I'm pretty sure you can put like a content lock on certain levels or, or I'm not quite sure how it works. Cause I don't, so. yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how that translates to, you know, using your point with the, 
you know, not necessarily arbitrary uh, designations that MPA gives, but maybe have, you know, lost a sense of purpose in a lot of the ratings and or not, maybe not, that's not, maybe that's not even the right phrase, but just haven't really, I think, effectively captured what is, what is mature content and maybe what isn't mature content. Uh. I don't know. You might want to go watch this film is not yet rated if you think they're not arbitrary because there's some pretty arbitrary stuff in there. Sure. I, I, I mean, well, when I say that, I think that it, we view it as arbitrary, but I'm sure that there was some logic behind the the designations that they made. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just need to go watch the movie and stop talking about it. But I think that there probably was some logic at some point. But the fact is, once those quote unquote rules or standards are put in place, you then try to get companies and I don't mean to call out anyone when I say this, but then you have Marvel who are like are adamant about making every single one of their movies, PG 13, you know, whatever they have to do to make it PG 13, they'll make it PG 13. Now that doesn't mean I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that Marvel's movies should be rated R, but the point is that you start having production and distribution companies start trying to play a game to get their movies rated PG 13 to your point about Miss Bala. Um, you know, there weren't two uses of the F word or, you know, there wasn't blood. So it's not, it's not our, um, it, it feels like at some point you lose the spirit of the rating. I mean, absolutely. I, I could, I couldn't agree more. And I definitely think everyone should go check out that documentary. All right, Scott. Well, on that note, is, is that what you want to leave our viewers with? We're, we're going to wrap things up now. Is there anything else you'd like to like to leave with our, our, our listeners with? Uh, Tennessee Vols still number one in the nation, 18 in a row. And next Saturday, uh, Scott, you and I are going to have some words. Uh, yeah. I mean, so actually what time is the game? 8 p.m. Well, it's going to be great because it's going to be terrible for our listeners who are listening to this after the game has already been played. Yeah. Um, well, so, so you'll know that Tennessee just ran Kentucky out of their own gym. Um, so, you know, you, you can laugh about it in retrospect. You know, wor- worse Tennessee teams have done worse things to Kentucky teams. Yeah. Um, I remember maybe like four or five years ago at whatever team the New Orleans Noel was on. Yeah. Granted, he just torn his ACL, but then got absolutely wrecked at uh, Tennessee's gym. Thirty, yes, thirty. Uh, point. I believe it was eighty-eight, fifty-eight. I, I mean, I believe that. Uh, that sounds right. You know, Scott. I think our listeners. Well, they may not know this actually. Um, of course, I, I did not go to University of Kentucky. You did not go to University of Tennessee, but you are much more passionate about the balls than I am the cats, um, given our own uh, connections to them. But uh, that that doesn't uh, doesn't change anything. Yeah, I think you know this is going to be such a huge game. Both teams are going to be in the top five. Like I think anyone who even has a casual association with either school is going to want to is going to be invested going to be in front of the TV when when uh they take the floor at Rupp. Yeah, absolutely. Um I'm trying to think they'll probably be in the top 4, right? Cuz Virginia will probably drop out of the top 5 even though they did lose even though it was Duke. They I think they, I think they will drop out. I don't think that's a guarantee, but it, it's it's definitely possible. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, Scott. I'm I hope that it'll be a good game. Uh, and obviously, I hope that Kentucky wins, but I think we can both agree that we want it. We, maybe you would like it just to be an absolute blowout. I don't. I don't know. A, a blowout would be fun. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it will be, but uh, you know. Uh, but yeah, again, the most important thing is that Tennessee wins. <laughs> of course, I think that both both teams are starting to really hit their true form, though. Like over the last few games, Kentucky has played uh, much, much more, much better than their you know five freshmen or four freshmen. I think PJ Washington's technically not a freshman, but uh, their four freshmen might belie. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Tennessee has won 18 in a row. And, you know, t- to be fair, as, as biased as it may be, they haven't had a ton of competition in that time. Admiral Schofield even said, like, we have to remember, like, w- what it's like to win big games. Or I, I don't know exactly what he said, but he, like the, that winning almost lost its thrill a little bit because they've been going about their business in such a 
robotic fashion and just dispatching, you know, pretty below average teams with with ease. So it will be interesting to see if they have, you know, if there are any the least bit lethargic when they go in and have to face a really high quality team in Kentucky. And that's a great that's a great point. I think that that's not the kind of comment you want to hear going into a crunch time in the season that you're that, you know, your team is tired of winning because now is when you want to be winning. Yeah. But at the same time, these guys are so experienced. I mean, I don't they're not going to be intimidated by Rupp. They won there last year. They're not going to be intimidated by McDonald's All-American freshman. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I I I will ride with these boys uh, wherever they may take me. And, and I still think they're going to win this one. Uh, you know, only time will tell our listeners, of course, will already know and they will only have the uh, the second round of, of this battle to, to look forward to when they when they listen to the podcast. But nevertheless, we shall see. Yeah. Go balls. All right. Uh, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarvey Dent. You'll definitely see me tweeting about that game. <laughs> yeah, uh, I there are a few things in life that I'm sure about. But Scott Harvey tweeting about one of his teams in a big game. Uh, almost one of the things that you can count on. Uh, bet the house on it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I can be found at S Shelton two zero one three over on Twitter and you can find our podcast on Twitter as well at at media plug pods. Uh, you know, we've, we will talk about it more on our Oscar predictions episode that will be coming up uh, later in the week, but please join our, our Oscar pool. We're doing this competition where, um, you know, we've put out a ballot that, that obviously copies the Oscar ballot and, and the person who, does the best uh, in in that bracket challenge and that uh, that ballot challenge, I guess I should say. Um, and that doesn't mean you don't have to beat Scott and me, although if you beat Scott and me, uh, all the better. But the winner of our um, ballot pool gets to choose uh, a movie for us to review on a future episode. That can be any movie. It can be uh, a new release. It can be a, a, a movie from 100 years ago. I don't know if they made movies 100 years ago, but if not, I think they did. They're probably silent movies 100 years. It might be hard to find for us, but if we can find it, We'll review it, and if you so desire, you're welcome to join us on the episode that we review that movie on. But yeah, go over there. Um, I'll include the link in the episode description to the ballot. You can also check out check out the link on Twitter, on Facebook. They should be in, in all the usual places, but, but check that out. And then we'd also like you to check out our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, uh, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. Uh, we'd really appreciate it, even if you only contribute at the $1 level. That'd help us out. Uh, and again, that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check it out for yourself. If you can, if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, though, that's totally fine. We understand. And you can totally find us on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Uh, that's www.podbean.com slash mediaplugpods or on the Apple Podcasts app, of course, uh, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us subscribe, shared, all, all the usual business there. All right, Scott, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of the day to listen to us chat about movies. As I mentioned already, stay tuned later this week for an Oscars prediction special ahead of Sunday night's big event. And then we'll be back in two weeks' time with a full review of the 91st Academy Awards, as well as our most anticipated movies of 2019. That'll be a two-part episode uh, for that. But for now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.